Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Right, hello, this is It Could Happen Here. Uh, oh, boy. Yeah, we've conned Robert into being here uh, for Civil War Week, no less. Uh, we're also joined by special mm-hmm. guest Margaret Kiljoy uh, that's right. and Sophie and Gare, who are less special. Now, we're wow. here whole week. Yep, that's we're, right. We're here to start a civil war, right? Uh, that's we're what I've read on Reddit, yes. Start a civil war, Sophie? Yeah. We. Cl- uh, we cleared that. We, we cleared that with corporate, right? Yeah, cor- I, 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 I can either radio confirm nor is deny. Officially backing the start of a of a civil war. Yeah, we're, we're, we're on yeah, board. Yeah, okay. essentially, uh, corporate mm-hmm. said, you know, the, go 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 ahead, cool zone media, start a civil war. Start a civil war. And we do will we... be civilly and criminally liable for all violence that occurs. And we've been, we've That's the iHeartRadio pe- guarantee. Yeah, and we've enlisted the people on this call who are Margaret Kildray, Robert mm-hmm. Evans, mm-hmm. Garrison Davis. Mm-hmm. James Stout and myself, Sophie. They are no also all name. civil and criminally liable. Yeah, but um, do we get to collectivize a huge, maybe like seventy percent or so of all the industry? Yeah, obviously. I mean, s- some of us do. Okay. Probably. Okay. What? It's like any civil war. You're going to find out who later. Well, okay. We're going to find out who today, Robert. <laughs> this is my uh, in-depth guide Excellent. into how to beat a coup, uh, start a civil war. And uh, win the first part of it. Oh, good. 
Well, that's the only part of it you really need to win. Yeah, it is. You don't want to get too bogged down in the later stuff because it's just depressing. So we, we just want to focus mm-hmm. on how to win the first 48 hours. And uh, yeah. sort of from there, you can taper off. Take, really. a week, take the weekend off. Yeah, break off. Chill out. Yeah, You're fine. Or just go down as a hero and let everyone else sort everything else out afterwards. I think that's probably the best option. That's going to learn, learn about a guy hey. who uh, dies within 24 hours of the war starting as a hero and gets a gun named after him, which is all we can really want for ourselves. Oh, that does sound like the dream. Yeah, that's that's a that's the way Robert Evans needs to go. Not suggesting that mm-hmm. anytime mm-hmm. soon, of course. Uh, all right. Um, I'm trying so, to imagine: would it be the Robert or would it be the Evans? Yeah, the Robert? Like, what's yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> definitely the Robert. the Robert. Just give him a good old bobbin. Mm-hmm. It, would, it <laughs> yeah. would be named after my Nick's name, my nickname, the Jesus Christ of podcasting. Right, Sophie? One hundred percent no. Yeah, so, no. Sophie says yes. If there's not already a gun named after Jesus, I will be shocked. Yeah, it's probably not a kind of company you want to. We've we've really gotten off, and I I think in all fairness, it's not my fault. It's, no. I think it's Garrison's fault. Yeah, that's who mm-hmm. I was going to blame. All I right, think we've all agreed all on right. that. What are we talking about, James? Talking about the Spanish Civil War today. We'll be Yay. Uh, be desecrating the name of Jesus Christ a little bit later as well. So uh, oh, we can I sort of love desecrating the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'd gathered, yeah. yeah we'll, we'll do that just some more for you today. I'll send you some pictures afterwards that you, you, you will enjoy. All right, so we're talking about the Spanish Civil War. We're not talking about all of it because that's a lot. And because I think it's important when we talk about the Spanish Civil War to talk about like the moments when revolutionary things happened because they are as important as the moments when terrible things happened. Uh, and the moments when the people in arms defeated the coup because that's both instructive and inspiring and interesting wait i have a question yeah what's the spanish civil war that's a great question and one i've failed to address thus far it is a war uh, that happened in spain uh, it wasn't very civil so only two huh. out of three uh okay. remarkably uncivil actually so we're looking at 1936 today we're looking at july 19th and 20th 1936 right but you can see it as like the precursor to the second world war uh you okay. have People who are fascist or fascist adjacent. You have people who are explicitly anti-fascist. And they are killing each other uh, from 1936 to 1939. And the anti-fascists win, right? Not entirely, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, they have some wins along the way. Okay, okay. Yeah, there's some moments. The friends that you meet along the way. Yeah, what is civil war if not the friends that you make along the way? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Don't answer that at home because it's sad. But... Yeah, these, these are some friendly times. These are some good times. Uh, okay. These are the first 48 hours of the Spanish Civil War. We're going to start with an anecdote about the Popular Olympics, which you probably have never heard of unless you're me, because uh, it's, a, it's a thing that I've written about a shit ton, uh, but not many folks have read about. It's the Antifa Olympics. It's the best way to understand the Popular Olympics. It was a gathering held in 1936 in Barcelona in opposition to the Berlin Olympics. So the Olympics are given to... Uh, Weimar Germany in 1931, right? They're not given to Nazi Germany, but when Germany... Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's Vi- an interesting... Weimar Germany is the pre-Nazi, it's before Hitler takes power. Yeah, uh, when they were actually pretty cool uh, in, in some ways, pretty pretty progressive mm-hmm. for the time period, right? In, in lots of ways. Um, it's the woke call... Germans. Yes, Ugh. it is the woke Germans. It's uh, it's like if, if, if AOC was running 1930s Germany, that's what you get. I bet they had a whole institute that trans people got to hang out at and learn about themselves. 
I've heard that, yeah. What happened to that institute? I can't remember. Uh, the Nazis came and uh, killed the first woman to medically transition in the Western Hemisphere and uh, burned all of the books and then stole the records that the people had been keeping about all the gay people and then rounded up all the gay people and murdered them in camps. That's that's what happened. Well, <laughs> that's disappointing. Th- well, good thing that'll... Good thing that'll never happen again. Anyway, no, yeah. we've learned our lesson. Yeah, there's absolutely no echoes of that in current political discourse, so that's fine. Hey, let's learn yeah. how to kill fascists. Um, let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah. Yay! Fuck them. Uh, okay, uh, so we're talking about the Popular Olympics, the anti fair Olympics, the Olympics that happen because the Nazis are shit and you shouldn't mm-hmm. play games with shit people. Uh, to include the Olympics, even if you very much want to win a medal, uh Take note, athletes uh, doing uh, sports and dictatorships. Um, And so a lot of people, about 20,000 people, instead decide to go to Barcelona, where they're going to host this alternative games. Uh, And the subtext of the Popular Olympics is not just that, like, Hitler shouldn't have the Olympics. It's that, gasp, Hitler shouldn't exist. And the anti-fascism is strong and youthful and perfectly capable of fighting a war and killing the fascists, right? That, that's sport, George Orwell called sport war without the shooting, right? Uh, this is a <laughs> war with the shooting. Uh, <laughs> it's a good quote. Uh, George Orwell pops up a few times in this one. Uh, not always right about everything, but he was right about that. Um, well, he pops so, up at the wrong time. It's uh, Never mind. I'm yes. trying to make a George Orwell get shot. <laughs> shot in the throat. Now I just feel bad about it because... <laughs> At least that's anyway. the least. I mean, before podcasting, the throat was the best place to get shot as a writer. That's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah, 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 yeah. It didn't go well for him in the end. Uh, it sort of did end his life prematurely, I guess. But uh, he got some bangers out in, in, in terms of books first. Yeah. But can't fault him. Um, all right, so we're talking about the Popular Olympics, talking about the night before the Popular Olympics. You're going to learn what, why you haven't heard of the Popular Olympics. So uh, I guess keep listening. Okay. 86 years ago in Barcelona, Pau Casal, the father of modern cello, was leading the final rehearsals for the opening ceremony of the Popular Olympics. They had already practiced the hymn of the Popular Olympics. It was a song co-written by a Catalan composer and an exiled Jewish one who had fled oppression in Germany. Now they moved to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. You might know it as the Ode to Joy. Casals recounted what happened next in his memoirs. I just called the chorus on stage to sing the chorale when a man rushed into the hall. He handed me an envelope, saying breathlessly, This is from Minister Gasol. An uprising is expected, in the city, at any moment. I read Gasol's message. It said our rehearsal should be discontinued immediately, or the musicians should go straight home, and that the concert scheduled for the following day had been cancelled. The messenger told me that since the message was written, an insurrection had started in Madrid, and fascist troops were now marching on Barcelona. I read the message aloud to the orchestra and to the chorus, and then I said, Dear friends, I do not know when we shall meet again. As a farewell to one another, shall we play the finale? And they shouted, Yes, let us finish it. Then the orchestra played, and the chorus sang, as never before. I could not see the notes because of my tears. So that's how uh, Pau Casal starts the Civil War. Uh, they finished that concert in 2016, incidentally. They came back to the same place and... Uh, wow. And yeah, it was very... Wait, uh, the same people? Uh, no, not... Well, okay. the same institutions, right? Okay. These, are, these are called Orfeos, like, uh, I guess, popular choruses, popular kind of uh, city orchestra kind of thing. Okay. Um, so they finished it in the same place uh, because 
in the intervening 80, 80 years, there was uh, a little issue with the Franco dictatorship, uh, which there still is in Spain, uh, incidentally. But uh, yeah, Barcelona has very much reclaimed its memory as an anti-fascist city following the dictatorship. Yeah. I could really, so, I, I can really yeah. see myself in those musicians. You know, like it just feels like a very possible thing, unfortunately, to just be like, okay, well, we're gonna do this thing, and then, well, I guess I don't know. Should we finish? Like, yeah, yeah fuck it, fuck yeah, it. yeah, right. Like, at some point, I don't, maybe not. Like, look, yeah. all of us were doing something else when we learned that uh, a, a bunch of chuds had stormed Congress, right, and that the uh, the yak hat man was inside the Senate chamber. Um, <laughs> like, like, uh, it, it, and some of us finished. I was on a bike ride. I, I kept riding my bike. Like, there's not, there's not much I can do. Uh, sometimes you have to take the moments of joy because there might be much joy yeah. available for the next little while. Um, so yeah, I think it's easy to see myself in a lot of this stuff. Uh, perhaps that's why I'm drawn to it. Uh, all right. The following morning, the city woke up before dawn to the sound of gunfire. To most of the Catalan working class, this wasn't a surprise. The coup had begun two days earlier in Morocco, and word travelled quickly among the anarchists. By the time the men of the 4th Division, under General Fernandez Buriel, began their march to the central Plaza de Catalunya, the people of the Popular Front were ready. The uprising had begun in Morocco on the 17th, and all day tension had been building. Union Radio had called a general strike, and despite the refusal of the Republican government to acknowledge how deep of trouble they were in, their unions were under no allusion as to the stakes. By lunchtime on the 19th, Spain had gone through three prime ministers since breakfast and Barcelona had defeated a coup. So what, what happens to the, are the prime ministers like, okay, you be prime minister and you're like, oh, fuck no, I don't want to be prime minister. Or are they getting like killed by the fascists or? No, no, Madrid is, is very, well, it's not very safe, it's safe. Uh, mm -hmm. They basically, your first guy uh, is like, ah, I done fucked up here. I should have uh, seen this one coming, given that I was explicitly warned about it for weeks. Uh, <laughs> he's like, peace, I'm out. Uh, second guy pops in, he's like, don't worry, guys, we can fix this. What we need to do is call the uh, call the generals, talk it out. Uh, the, and it's interesting. Call the fascists. Yeah, give them just just uh, like oh. reason with them. Um, mm -hmm. It's interesting because what happens is in that conversation, it's the fascist generals. I think it's Capo de Llano, he calls. I can't remember. Godet, maybe. Maybe Godet. Anyway, it says like, you have your people and I have mine. And... Uh, in that moment, what's happening is a fascist general who is leading a coup is reminding an elected politician that he has an obligation to serve the people who elected him and, and not just to make like unilateral compromises with fascists, right? So that, <laughs> the, it, it, yeah, what a country, what a time. At that moment, that second prime minister is also doomed, right? So then we, we move on to number three. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we open up the armories to the working class, right? Which is what they should have done earlier. In in every city where the working class is armed, the coup is defeated. In every city where it's not armed, the coup succeeds. Um, and, well, uh, that doesn't have any ramifications for today, so keep going. No, absolutely not. Um, no, and it's something that we can't learn from, uh, yeah. so we shouldn't, we shouldn't try. Um, and... Obviously, it's not a direct parallel. Uh, there are some really interesting moments in, in this particular arming of the working class. One that I had to come mm -hmm. back to is that the uh, the, uh, the soldiers, right? It's, obviously, the, the weapons are in the hands of the military. And obviously, mm -hmm. the military has just done a coup. 
but not all the military has just done a coup. So you have some generals or colonels who are in charge of uh, barracks um, who or armories, and they will be like, yeah, okay, I've got the order. That's what I'm going to do. I think this coup is kind of bullshit. Like, it hasn't succeeded yet. It might not succeed. Here are the rifles, union members. But in Madrid, you have another colonel who's a diehard uh, coup, coup guy, big, big mm-hmm. coup person, uh, who is in control of the bolts of the rifles. Um, so, like, it, the rifle doesn't work without the bolt, right? The bolt is a bit uh-huh. that, like, plugs a hole and makes the bullet go bang. Um, I've explained that properly, right, Robert? That's a, that's a technical terminology. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just the piece that makes the gun go bang. Yeah, so the uh, uh, bolt critical to the functioning of the rifle held by another guy who turns out to be a fash, uh, and so he doesn't issue them the bolts. So you have all these working-class militiamen being like, how rifle work with no bolt? Uh, uh-huh. And just uh, like entering the streets anyway, right? Slapping on the bayonet, and now you have a pike. Uh, you have other oh people uh-huh. who have never operated a rifle before, so like allegedly everyone's calling the socialist union headquarters in in madrid being like do this do that and they're like i can't hear shit there's just hundreds of people behind me trying to operate the bolt on a bolt action rifle trying to learn how to do this and like they're taking their newsprint from their union newspaper right and trying to wipe the cosmoline off the rifles because they've been in like deep storage it's this very evocative Uh scene like you can smell it you can hear it of these people being like well, we never used these before. They've been in deep storage for a long time. They're covered in grease, but fuck it. Like, it's now or never. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it was, right? So if we go back to what happened in Barcelona, they had radios in public places, right? This was very common. Uh, whole books about how Nazis used radios, but it was common in the 30s. Parts of the city, the paving stones had barely been relayed from October 1934's fighting, but they were quickly pulled up again. Barricades were constructed. Old rifles and pistols and the bombs that the anarchists particularly love were dragged out of the bottom of drawers. <laughs> <laughs> These people fucking love throwing bombs. Like uh, the uh, just the, the the yeah. The, there's a there's a lady later on in the war called Rosa la Dinamitera, like Rosa the Dynamiter, who um, who just like becomes a legend, right, for just throwing dynamite at fascists. Uh, she that loses rules. her. She, yeah, she, like there's so much awesome shit that happens that gets lost because, yeah, ultimately, like Hitler and and uh, Mussolini win the Spanish Civil War, basically, right? Spoiler. Yeah. So actually, that night before the before the troops march on the city, the UGT, the Socialists, control the dock union, the dock workers mm-hmm. union, and they're like, "Hey, hang on, I'm pretty sure there's a ship in the harbor that has dynamite on it. Let's raid it." So they raid the ship. Okay. Steal the dynamite. And drive through the city distributing it to union members who spend the entire <laughs> night making bombs. <laughs> I'm sure that that went badly for several of them, but... Yeah, well, it went badly for fascists too, but... Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, almost undoubtedly. Uh, and like uh, Robert and I have talked to some people in some other contexts who have made homemade bombs. And uh, don't smoke, is what I will say. Do not smoke if you're in the process of making bombs or explosives. Oh, whatever. That's the same people who say that you can't smoke while you're fueling up your car. Yeah, cowards. Yeah. Go down like a chad. Yeah. Um, that, that's just my message to you. Uh, the other thing they did was they put on like their mono. So like a mono is like a uh, like a onesie, right? Like an overall uh, blue mono is kind of the militia uniform because they weren't an army. They were just working class people who worked at factories who were mm-hmm. not taking any shit from the army that day. Um mm-hmm. And they put on their little union hats, which you can see in all the photos. They look very cool, very quaint. Um, 
So to understand why the conflict they fought that day began, it's probably beyond the scope of this podcast. And to understand where it ended the way it did will infuriate just about everyone listening, which is fine, but we don't have all day. Okay. If you want to know more about some of the people involved, Margaret Kiljoy's podcast on Hispanic Anarchist is a great place to start. What? Yep. Okay. I thought it was wonderful. Um, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, do. Yeah. Uh, it's great podcast. Really, really great. I love it. Wow. Sophie listens too. Look at that. Yeah. Yeah. Cosign. Uh, yep. You should like and subscribe. Uh, is, that, <laughs> is that still the thing? That, what, uh, what was, the what was that title again? To, cool people yeah. who did cool stuff? Yeah. I think so. I, that I sounds about so, right. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've heard of that. Yeah. The host is brilliant. Yeah. She's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to make, be clever, but instead I'm probably blushing. <laughs> <laughs> no. You deserve it. Aww. Okay, yeah, if you want to read some books, I'm going to list some books at the end, uh, probably far <laughs> too many, because uh, this is my shit. But uh, uh, I've I also think there's written... more books written about the Spanish Civil War than, um, well, I guess war in general, but I think anarchists have written more about the Spanish Civil War than uh, maybe... Undoubtedly. Any, anything else combined. Yeah, the, the device we are speaking on is currently uh, propped up on a large stack of them, actually. Uh, but, yeah. most of my material possessions are anarchist books about the Spanish Civil War <laughs> it's, uh, yeah it's nice it's the way your life should be kids yeah. I've written one too uh, and uh, it's heinously expensive uh, but uh, you know I'm happy with it if uh, if you struggle to obtain it materially please just shoot me a direct message uh, unless you kind of have some kind of gross disagreement because you're a fascist or something in which case please don't bother um okay uh i don't know how you got this far if you were a fascist i guess uh for now though let's get back yeah yeah i yeah i probably have some uh i don't know uh fuck off nazis i guess i think Uh, i think fewer people hate listen i okay my theory i know that we mm -hmm. wanted to hear my theory about why podcasting took off um is because it's harder People don't have the attention span to hate listen the same way that they can like hate skim or like <laughs> hate read tweets and reply. And so I've made a lot of different media in a lot of different ways over the past couple of decades. And I get less hate mail about podcasts than most other forms. Um, yeah. So that's my theory is that people podcast because no one wants to sit there and like hate listen i mean people like hate listening to clips that's why we all listen to those like clip shows where they take the right wing person and you know yeah show them saying something that we all think is not an intelligent thing to say and then we laugh or whatever but so anyway if you're the person who has been put on this earth to hate listen to it could happen here in order to uh i don't know um make fun of it to your audience um Thanks for the listens, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, yeah we're getting that, that sweet revenue. Um, I know. From well, where the, does that revenue uh, come from? It just appears. It's like uh, like lichen uh, oh, that grows on the side of a wet building. It doesn't come from, from ads? No, well, ad, I don't think so. Ads, I don't think... ads do organically grow a lot, a lot like lichen. They just start showing up um, and replicating. We really have no choice. But yeah, anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's a fact of nature. Um, yeah. If you are that person, I will say that my message is uh, stop being a Nazi. Uh, that's just me being polite. On the night of the 18th, some assault guards, members of an elite paramilitary police force that was founded by, and sometimes, mostly, loyal to the Republic, 
went against the orders of their officers and sneaked rifles out to members of the CNT, an anarchist union. And that's pretty, uh, that's pretty based. Uh, it's the one day, as you will learn, uh, this is the one day all cops took off from being bastards. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of them, it turns out, are capable of doing the right thing, or were in 1936, I should say. Yeah, if cops were handing out rifles to anarchists, the, that would be not a parallel that I can easily imagine in the <laughs> modern context. Yes, uh, yeah, somewhat unique, right? It doesn't mean that these people had not spent the past decades killing each other. Uh, mm-hmm. It does not mean that they would not return to doing so within less than a year. Uh, but just for a day, everything was hunky-dory. Um, <laughs> it's left as <laughs> Christmas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this pretty yeah. This more or less is leftist Christmas, like because uh, there's even like uh, there's gifts. Uh, they call them proletarian shopping trips, um, but what they do is uh, requisition merchandise from stores and uh, and distribute it to people who need it. Are you just uh, are, you, are you referring to armed robbery? Is that that that's a different thing? Uh, yeah, it's, that, it's uh, only armed robbery if somebody tries to fight back. Otherwise, yeah. you just happen to be shopping with a gun. That's it. And what if there is no law? Is it really a crime? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. No one, no one can say. I will say that they only, it seems like they only robbed uh, the shopkeepers who were turds. Uh, okay. People who like lent a lot of money uh, at a very high interest rate, things like that. Um, and these proletarian shopping trips, uh, a thing oh, about I'm, I'm, which. I'm not being against what happened. Oh, I'm no, just, <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, stripping <laughs> away some of the, the yeah, niceties. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If people hadn't gathered, uh, if they weren't picking up what I was putting down, yes, it is going into a shop with guns and taking things and giving them to people who need them. Uh, yeah. Whether or not that is bad, who can say? Yeah. Uh, Robin Hood, yeah. famous villain in history. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, bad, bad dude. Uh, Sheriff of Nottingham, on the other hand, would have been big into crypto, I'm sure. <laughs> All around legend. So when I said... If there is no law, I wasn't really joking. Uh, like at this point, Luis Compagnes, who's the Catalan leader, he's a liberal leftist politician. And earlier that evening, he'd refused to open the armories. He realizes that things are out of his control. And so he sets off for a walk. Uh, and he walks down the Rambla, right? If you've been to Barcelona, it's this big old street. Now it's full of the kind of restaurants that have photographs on their menus so that German people can understand what they're going to eat. Um, which is much of Barcelona, and American people, but yeah, uh, people who don't speak Catalan or Spanish who go to Barcelona can eat very well there for lots of money. Um, have you been on holiday? You've probably been there. I did not eat very well in Barcelona. Really? I um, had almost no money and was vegan, and my Spanish was oh, abysmal, and my Catalan boy. was non-existent. So I mostly uh, are... hung out and cooked yeah. f- pasta. <laughs> there, are, there are not a lot of cities I've been to where it's harder to eat vegan than Barcelona. Yeah. That is that is a challenge. Maybe yeah. Belgrade, <laughs> yeah, where the na- where the national dish is thirty pounds of meat on a plate. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Sofia, no, Sofia, Sofia. I can't remember how to pronounce the name of the capital of uh, Bulgaria. Um, also, a hard place to eat vegan. That was hard for me. Oh yeah, that yeah. does not surprise me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Surprise meat is a big part of the. Uh, the Catalan cuisine, you'll be like, oh yeah, I'm having some lentils. And then they'll be like, psych, there's a pig in here. <laughs> we put a whole fucking pig in this thing. 
We did reverse vegan. We made lentils out of pig. Yeah. I just ate <laughs> falafel. Everywhere I go, oh, in yeah, Europe, yeah, I just yeah, eat falafel. You, you can crush some falafel. Um, one of the Catalan national dishes is called capipota, which means uh, head and foot, uh, because those are the ingredients. Nice. Uh, and it's uh, it's a bit of a pig that no one else wanted. <laughs> See, one of the American national dishes is also the uh, head and feet of face of a pig, but they call it a hot dog. At least the Catalans are honest about it. Uh, That's true. But yeah, it's better now to eat vegan. I'm vegan and I was there in 2019. Uh, okay. Just have, have to move among the right circles. Um, okay. But yeah, uh, on the Rambler, it would be hard. Um, so that night, Compagnes is walking down the Rambler. He's got his hat across his face so no one could see him and he's pulled up his collar, kind of like an old-timey private eye. Mm-hmm. And up and down the Rambler... Uh, anarchists and socialists are stealing cars and welding armor plates to the front of them. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Another time-honored anarchist tradition. <laughs> yeah. King of war is the improvised technical. Um, so what they do here is weld these steel plates, right? Uh, and then they write uh, the name of the union on top just so people can know who's killing them. Well, and so they can keep track of their stolen cars. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like, uh, yeah, you don't want anyone stealing your stolen car. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there comes a point in the next couple of weeks where uh, some of the more ideologically committed anarchists uh, will stop uh, or take down traffic signals because they feel they're an unwarranted restriction on individual liberty. <laughs> <laughs> There's Twitter discourse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get on that, tankies. Yes. Um, time, time is a flat circle. Yeah, it's it's very funny. Um, I'll yeah. bet they. I bet there were was a contingent of them that were taking down libraries too for gatekeeping knowledge. <laughs> libraries are cops. <laughs> libraries book are pigs. book prisons. Book pigs. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they burned uh, them just in a classic anarchist fashion. Or uh, we all know that libraries are better served under a free market system, like that one guy <laughs> tweeted. Yes, uh, Amazon should run the library, and every book should cost you ten dollars. Yep, that's uh, that's the only way we can uh, grow as a society. Um, if you don't like it, weld something to front of your truck. Also, if you have an idea that's based on a book, and Amazon owns the copyright, they now own the idea. That's the only mm-hmm. thing that's fair. No thinking yep. without proper copyright. Is it okay anyway. to use words if Jeffrey Bezos already owns words? No. D- does that mean uh, that we're going to be fighting the next one of these situations with uh, uh, instead of spray painting CNT, someone's going to come by and spray paint Amazon Basics onto mm-hmm. them with a third choice? <laughs> I'm doing that tonight. I will be up armoring my truck as, yeah. as soon as we're finished. Yeah. And uh, spray painting Amazon Basics and then uh, just going to the beach after that. And mm-hmm. actually, what they spray painted on them, there was CNT, there was UGT, there was FI. Um, these are CNT. Uh, Confederación Nacional de Trabajo, right? A national labor confederation. This is an anarcho-syndicalist union. Uh, FI, uh, Federación Anarquista Iberia, is the uh, Iberian Anarchist Federation. They're a group within the CNT that is more committed to a hardline ideological ideological, uh, anarchism. The UGT are a socialist union. Uh, you have other groups too. Uh, the Poom is probably the only other one you need to know. They are not Trotskyites, Trotskyites. Anyone who tells you they are either doesn't know what they're talking about or is consciously misleading you. Um, they were in open beef with Trotsky, right? Like that, they are writing letters uh, to Trotsky 
beefing about whether they should exist, uh, which Trotsky is, is a no on that question. Um, so, yeah, they're not Trotskyists. They just get called Trotskyists by Stalinists because everyone who they don't like is a Stalinist, right? But they are mm-hmm. anti-Stalinist Marxists, um, is what I will call them. Uh, okay. What some folks do, though, uh, is they paint UHP on top of their cars. Uh, Unidos Hermanos Proletarios, I think it stands for. Uh, um, United Proletarian Siblings, I guess. And that's important, right? Because these groups had been fighting among themselves and with each other for a very long time. Uh, and, and, and having like what appear today to be kind of comical beefs about inconsequential things. But um, they were important. And, and, you know, this ideological commitment is what gets them through this period of time. But the UHP comes from Asturias, where anarchists and socialists had come together to fight against the state. Right to fight uh, as part of a miners' strike. Uh, miners' particular love for dynamite, by the way. Um, and that's that how they. Makes sense. Yeah, kings of the dynamite throw. Um, that that's how they dealt with the local garrison, really. Uh, and uh, actually, the first use of a combat helicopter was against uh, the Popular Front, the UHP in Asturias, and that strike was eventually put down by one Francisco Franco, who we'll learn about later. Nice guy. No problems with him. That's a lie. What? Uh, yeah, shocking. I know. Turns out to be a total turd huh. of a human being. Yeah, but he was a. Up. Wasn't he? Um, oh no, I'm going down a rabbit hole. Wasn't he like some sort of vaguely? Wasn't he like a right wing syndicalist for a while? Yeah, he had all kinds of sort of. Uh, I don't think Franco had any convinced political views other than like that he wanted to be in charge. But yes, he was uh, okay. uh, like a radical syndicalist. Um, oh, I said right wing syndicalist, but yeah, no, but. Uh, yeah. So a number of officers. I don't know if Franco was with the, but there, there were like I don't a know. group called the I, I Radical Party who were. Not oh, radical. okay, I see. Um, I'm not sure if Franco was one. Now that I think about it, I try not to learn too much about the person of, of Francisco Franco because he is a turd. Mm. He he does pivot, and he pivots when he's in power, right? From like a sort of more totalitarian project to this national Catholic project uh, to this, this sort of uh, yeah, he's a problematic dude. Uh, with, with yeah, with no clear ideology other than he should be in power and he doesn't care who he has to roll over to get there. Um, That's a common political ideology. It is, yeah. It pops up a lot on the right. Uh, something, something there with dudes on the right that maybe we should think about. Uh, oh. No, it's never happened again, and, and never in this country, okay. of course. Okay, fortunately. That's, That's our uh, saying. It could never happen right where we are. Yeah. That's, yeah, not in my backyard. That's the real name of the show, right? <laughs> yeah, America is different. I think is the uh, subtitle and, and special. <laughs> uh, okay, oh. so <laughs> sorry. Uh, no, no, no. I'm just sad. That, yeah. Anyway, uh-huh. yeah. The people in Barcelona that day were even more numerous and diverse than the already bustling city was used to. The 19th of July was slated to be the start of the largest anti-fascist spectacle the world had ever seen. And that's a direct quote uh, from a publicity article about the Popular Olympics, right? Uh, as I said, these games aim to show the strengths of the Popular Front with a series of events. Some of those events are the ones you might expect, uh, but some of these events were designed to reward nations with a healthy working class rather than nations with a few exceptional athletes, right? So we look at the Olympics today, uh, it, having one or two exceptional athletes, especially in certain areas, can like vault you to the top of the medal table, right? Mm-hmm. Um, medal table, of course, 
invented by the Nazis to illustrate eugenics. Uh, Whoa, really? So, yeah, yeah. Before Almost 36, the, there was no Olympics table? Uh, not in the formal way that we see it now. Uh, so much of the pageantry that we associate with the Olympic Games uh, was uh, invented by Carl Diem. Uh, the torch relay, uh, the parade of flags in the opening ceremony. Like, yeah, the, the Olympics are fucking Nuremberg, like with the rainbow rings. It's wild how much of that shit is cribbed straight from Nazi pageantry. Cool. Um, the book called The Nazi Games, pretty good on that if you want to read it. Um, lots of books about the 30, 36 Olympics, but yeah. Um, I should just acknowledge that the, uh, the uh, International Olympic Committee did fund a lot of my research. <laughs> uh, and for reasons that may be becoming clear, have since ceased. Uh, also, they just didn't think I was very good, I guess. But uh, anyway... Uh, institution that has some shit to deal with that it hasn't dealt with i will mm -hmm. say um and it, yeah it was on its bullshit heavily in 1936 right um so one of the things they did at the popular olympics was they had a 10 by 100 meter relay and it's just like uh i don't know do americans have school sports days yes i try to i i don't remember anything <laughs> about uh, public school sporting events okay uh, at the risk of uh, sort of unveiling more trauma. Uh, what happens here... <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> okay. Uh, what happens here is that uh, you line up, right, in groups of five, and you just run back and forth, uh, passing a bat on to each other, um, much like school sports day, with the caveat being that the people in this event had to already be entered in other events at the games. Um, so, like, you just get like weightlifters and uh there was a chess event at the games right so you get the chess mm -hmm. athletes uh and they're just hauling ass as fast as their uh chess playing legs can carry them mm -hmm. uh back and forth to prove the uh like superior health of their nation's working class can we call Which them I think chess 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 fleets chess fleets yeah chess fleets chess fleets yeah thanks yeah i really saved that one yeah you pulled it back yeah i'm proud of you yeah. um yeah, they uh, they didn't have any mathletes. Uh, yeah, sadly. Yeah, they did have people who built human castles. So it was another event. Um, wait, really? But, wait, wait, wait! A castle made out of humans? Whoa! Wait! You are not familiar with castells, the uh, like the, the great Catalan tradition of building human towers. No. No. Okay. Like pivot. Uh, <laughs> so it's fucked now. Uh, one of my friends wrote her PhD on these. Uh, Holy they, shit! About yeah. something that they just made you up can... just now. <laughs> Listen, okay. A, you can write your history PhD about literally anything as long as no one else has written it before. That is the, <laughs> the sine qua non of history PhDs. Uh, and, uh, I wrote my PhD about the anti for Olympics, right? I wrote my master's about proletarian shopping trips. Uh, and, <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. Um, at the time. Uh, the Yeah, so Castells, right? You, you get your people at the bottom, right? And they sort of wrap a ribbon around their waist and then they, uh, they often bite the corners of their shirt. I'm aware that I'm biting my shirt and this is mainly an audio medium. Um, but uh, they'll wrap their hands over the other people, right? Uh, men and women, non-binary people, I'm sure too, to form a big old circle. And then the next layer, climb up them. Right? And stand on top of them. There's slightly fewer people. And the people get smaller and the layers have fewer people in them, like concentric circles, right? As you get higher and higher. Uh, and then a small child wearing always a horse riding helmet for reasons that are not entirely clear ascends. And this shit is high. Like, 
if you're standing on your balcony, like you are eye to eye with this fucking toddler uh, who climbs up the top, gets to the top, like arm in the air, and then climbs back down. Um, and, and these groups and people do, do this. In the people world. do this all the time. Yeah. Uh, look, <laughs> America's national sport is is this thing where like uh, young young men give each other brain damage. So like, oh, I'm not anti this. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. just uh, it. Yeah. What I, I'm actually impressed by it because we do the human pyramid thing, which is the same thing, only not nearly as impressive or interesting. No, I, I check out Castells. Um, the uh, the cool thing about them is they exist within communities, right? These calls, uh, these like, groups of Castellers are are groups of people who do this. Uh, from a neighborhood, right? So they'll, they'll all be from a certain town. Uh, like mm-hmm. the Tarragona group was the one near me. And uh, my friend's dissertation, Ida Ribot's her name, you can probably look it up, um, uh, it was about like how this, this practice has been integral into uh, incorporating migrants into Catalanness, right? Like Catalan identity by being like, yeah, come and, uh, come and stand on us or be stood on by us and you too can be Catalan. Oh, that seems like that would, uh, yeah, that would bring a community closer together into a heap on the ground. Yeah, and it has all kinds of other uses, right? A cat stuck up a tree, just call those guys. Um, yeah, want to rob a house? Don't. Yeah, famously, ladders are banned in Catalonia uh, because they're for cowards. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, just yeah. all day castells. Um, but yeah, this was part of the Popular Olympics, right? Uh, human castles. So uh, I'm glad we went there uh, mm-hmm. for everyone yeah. who didn't know. People googling that. It's part of like the uh, UN, like United Nations protected human patrimony or something. Like it's uh, it's 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 important. Um, so do you ever just like make up stuff to tell Americans about, <laughs> and then and then we believe you because you have an accent? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we have regular. an accent too, sure, but like yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. Luckily, your accents are all neutral and vanilla. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. The unmarked voice. Of, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um. Uh, let me, no, I did. I think I've told this story on the internet before, but uh, one time I uh, was giving a talk about diabetes in the Bronx and this, I asked if this kid wanted to, uh, I asked these kids if they wanted to ask any questions and this young woman itching to ask a question just goes, do you guys really have pies with meat in them? <laughs> like as if she'd been <laughs> misled her whole life and I was able to confirm that for her. I... Savory pies like fucked me up when I was in France. I was completely unprepared for the existence of these things. I volunteered to cook for a bunch of um, a bunch of activists who were busy having their meeting, and I was like, "Yeah, sure, I'll come cook for you." And I figured I would just like show up and make pasta or burritos because I'm an American. And they gave me a, a le menu, and on it was a tarte de legume. And I was like, "I know what those words mean. That means <laughs> pie vegetables, and that isn't that doesn't exist. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about." Um, this is not a very interesting story, and now everyone's heard it. But oh, well. I I learned how to make a vegetable pie on no notice because that was what the menu insisted upon. And yeah, I I feel for this person in the Bronx who wasn't convinced that you were telling the truth about meat pies. Yeah, I'm. If they're listening, I was. I promise. Uh, look it up now. They got Google. Yeah, the lesson we've learned there is don't cook for French people. so at the games uh one of the cool things is that nations competed instead of states right Uh, we can fucking go off on the difference between nations and states uh Mm -hmm. state is the entity the that uh, has political control and exercises a monopoly on legitimate violence in a geographic area a nation is an imagined community that exists across space and time 
that's the shortest I'm going to do that. And I'm not going to say anything. Okay. What's a country uh, between those? Uh, a country is essentially, it's a geographical area that a state controls. Okay, cool. Well, sometimes it's mapped onto nation as well, right? Like uh, Catalonia being a good example. But for f- most of the time, people use it synonymously with state. Um, yeah. So uh, countries aren't competing. Nations are, right? The exiled Jews of Europe are competing, right? Because if you're Jewish and it's 1936, you don't want to fucking like, march in there with the German flag, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't feel good. Yeah. Uh, like negative vibes. So they don't do that. They're, they are the exiled Jews, right? Um, the uh, anti-fascists who are exiled from Germany and Italy, they also come in with their own different flags, right? Um Initially, there was some rumblings about the NAACP sort of competing, uh, but in the end, the United States team, uh, which is made up of trade unionists, uh, had uh, black and white folks on it. Um, the organizers were actually so invested in, like, um, the, I guess, including oppressed black people from the United States mm-hmm. within the remit of people uh, who sort of uh, anti-fascism wanted to advocate for. That, and they threw this whole Olympics together in like three or four months. It was shoestring budget. It's funded by the French government, the Spanish government, the Catalan government, individual donors, and some trade unions from Norway. Mm-hmm. Um, and they took their very sparse money and were like, we will pay your way uh, if, you, if your black people from America want to come over here because we understand it's shit over there. Uh, and if you want to come and play with us, then that's fine. Which um, is a cool, like, I, fuck you to the fact that... Because the whole Olympics is a fuck you to to nazi germany right and so it's cool that it also was like and fuck you to racism in the united states also like i like that yeah and like it's also worth noting actually like while we're saying fuck you to the nazis and that like the people at the popular olympics like ran faster jumped higher were stronger uh like the olympics were extremely gatekept by class uh we see the we see that kind of crumbling like with your with your man jesse owens and stuff like Mm -hmm. that right but uh it, it it at this point there were still worker sports and bourgeois sports and bourgeois sports went to the Olympics, right? Like uh, the Olympics still had an amateurism rule. If you got paid for exercising, you couldn't go. Uh, and so, yeah, which meant that like working class people, right? Like if you don't get paid time off and no one gets fucking yeah. paid time off, it's 1936, then uh, they can't go and compete, right? Like if, even if you work full time and I say, hey, Margaret, I'll pay for a couple of weeks, you know, I'll make sure I take care of your rent so you can go and do the Olympics. Nope. Uh, if you run a benefit race after the Olympics, they will take your medal away. Holy uh, shit. I think Tom Longboat who they did that to. They do that a whole lot to people who aren't white, shockingly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, Olympics, not great, actually. Maybe we'll do a whole episode on how the Olympics do, do some bad shit. Um, but yeah, these people come from America, right? Uh, on the team is Charlie Burley. Uh, Charlie Burley goes on to be kind of a legendary uh, boxer, right? He's biracial man. Uh, from Pennsylvania, uh, and Dot Tucker, uh, she's a black woman. Uh, she ran her union in the Bronx, uh, and she ran the hundred meters as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, fucking plan that one out. Yeah, uh, I love a good you. written into the script, uh, like planned out. It's good, don't we? That sounds sarcastic, yeah. but I, I actually mean it really honestly. No, it's good. You can appreciate the joy uh, yeah. that I'm feeling right now. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, that game brings 20,000 anti-fascists to Barcelona, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are watching. Some of them are, are competing. Uh, some of them are staying in hotels. The Hotel Olympic is where most of them stay, but they ran out of space. So about two weeks before the games, they went around random houses and were like, hey, can you have somewhere to stay? Uh, so lots of the athletes were just like crashing <laughs> with people. Uh-huh. Um, 
It's kind of cool. If you go to the archive in Barcelona, you can see the little forms where they'd go up to a house and be like, okay, this person has two beds and they can take care of breakfast and that's two athletes who can stay here. Oh, uh, they, they went door to door. Yeah, it's heartbreaking seeing that shit and then knowing what happened. Um, oh, I was but, just thinking uh, it was like a better way to... Um, oh, yeah. Like that's what Airbnb should be, you know? <laughs> yes, yeah, anarchist Airbnb. Um, yeah. If we compare this to the Berlin Olympic Village... Uh, mm-hmm. where the Condor Legion stayed before they headed off to bomb people in Spain. Uh, cool. We will see that one side is better than the other side. Um, yeah. So these people are staying all across Barcelona, right? They trained in the stadium the day before. They're distributed all around the city. So on the morning of the 19th, Raquetes, uh, these are kind of hardcore Catholic conservatives. Um, they report to the San Andreu barracks outside of Barcelona. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, at the Pedralbe's barracks, officers get their troops up, I think it's at four in the morning, serve them a ration of rum uh, for breakfast, uh, and tell them that there's been an anarchist uprising in the city that they have to put down. And so Which they send them... Mar- lie, right? This is a lie. Yeah, the yeah, uprising okay. is in fact what they are doing as they march into the city. Um, oh, it's telling uh-huh. that they lie, because yeah. the troops are conscripts and are not really bought into their nationalist crusade at this point. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's worth always remembering that like working class people get trapped up in wars often not by their own choosing. Well, so it's kind of like how they're like, you have to go out and fight Antifa. You have to go out and do a coup against the United States because otherwise Antifa, who are all Stalinists, are going to turn the U.S. into the USSR. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, uh, yeah there are... There's no parallel. No, that's that's not a parallel. Sorry. Oh, uh, okay. No, it, it could never sorry. happen okay. here. Uh, and okay. that's that's our big message for today. Yeah. So these guys they start heading down Avenida Diagonal, right towards Plaza Catalunya at the heart of the city. The cavalry are on a different street, Calle Tarragona. There are dragoons on a different street. Uh, they leave a little later uh, because the Spanish army is something of a clusterfuck, and they all plan to join up, but they never did. Instead, okay. all across the city, sirens sound the alarm in factories. Um, and where these troops have been planning to meet up with one another, they met up with sniper fire and those homemade bombs we talked about. Yeah. Yeah. This is where shit gets, gets good. Uh, at the barricades, they met men and women armed with everything from modern machine pistols to blunderbusses and slingshots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The blunderbusses okay. are pretty cool. You can find some pictures. Um, many troops were forced back into their barracks. Some made it as far as a telephone exchange and the hotels Ritz and Cologne in the middle of the city. What the troops, who are incredibly poorly trained conscripts with little or no combat experience and even less willingness to fight, ran into, was the most unlikely of alliances. Catalonia's nationalists had governed the autonomous region since the Declaration of the Republic in 1931. They formed a broad leftist alliance called the Esquerra Republicana de Catalunya. That means Catalan Republican Left. I'll just call them the ERC to avoid... It's a bit of an alphabet soup, but Mm -hmm. uh, I'll try and explain where I need to. Uh, So before the Popular Front existed, they're kind of a proto-Popular Front. They combine liberal and leftist parties um, who share agreement on autonomous and progressive Catalonia. And they tend to be either aligned with or to the left of the government in Madrid, most often to the Mm -hmm. left of. Um, They don't have the support of the anarchists, right? That's important. Um, Luis Compans, who's the the leader, right, the... um, the Catalan leader of the Generalitat at that point, has been a lawyer for the anarchists before, so he may have more personal support than the party as a whole has among the anarchists. Um, for decades, right, the police in Barcelona have acted on behalf of capital against labour. 
Um, they do violence for the people who own stuff against people who make stuff. And even under the Republic, this had continued, right? They called it mm-hmm. the Republic of Order. Um, but Margaret, I think you covered the, uh, like the pistolerismo, right? The, the years of the pistol in the 1920s. Yeah, yeah, a bit. Um, it was... Yeah, they like shooting the anarchists in order to yeah. bring about order. They and they it wasn't like a legal thing. They weren't like, oh, it's our legal strategy. It was just a like, we're in charge, so we will assassinate the anarchists. And then the other thing that like I feel like is like worth thinking about, because if, if someone's hearing, you might be like, Well, why does the government care if the anarchists are on their side? And it's to my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, the anarchists are like a huge chunk of the working class of Barcelona at this point so it's like they actually do care because it's a huge huge swaths of people the anarchists by the end of the night will own the city right and and they have always been the majority of the catalan working class in this period Mm -hmm. um they they control the way elections go right when the anarchists abstain then the right wins when the anarchists They don't say don't vote. Like they they don't like they're not like, yeah, go vote. They're like, they don't maybe consider not abstaining. Uh <laughs> then the, the popular front wins, right? Um uh-huh. they, yeah, it's very funny how they how they use words. Uh but yeah, the, the anarchists are the working class for the for the most of the most of the industries, most of the unions are anarcho syndicalists, right? So if you don't okay. have to support the anarchists, you don't have to support the working class. Okay. Um yeah, in the twenties, uh the cops killed the anarchists, the anarchists killed the cops, right? Uh, this is how we get uh, the famous affinity groups, right? Uh, los Solidarios, Los Quijotes del Ideal, and uh, Nosotros being some famous ones, right? And we'll talk about them a little bit in the next episode, how that works and what they mean. Uh, so in 1931, the Declaration of Republic was a massive boost for the anarchists. Um, more people joined anarchist unions. They felt safer doing so. Uh, Primo de Rivera, the previous dictator, had been very harsh on anarchists. Uh, they actually briefly, in the Alt Yobregat, secured uh, like libertarian socialism. They just took over some towns, uh, and uh, like they they, they uh, seized weapons from the cops and abolished currency for a week. Uh, and, and it was just like, yeah, it's on. It, it's anarchism. Yeah. Um, so for five five days, Figols belonged to the people of Figols. Um, and this is before but, this is we're talking about before the uh, the coup and all of that. Yeah, this is in 1932. So the yeah. Republic begins in 1931. So yeah. uh, there's a number of these like early on in the Republic when the state is less violently postured towards anarchism, the anarchists really fucking send it. Um, you see right. it in Casas Viejas, you see it in Figols. Um, so yeah, they more people join because they feel safer joining, and that leads to more open conflict with with the sort of civil order, I guess. Mm-hmm. But with the threat of fascism looming, the CNT establishes defense committees. Uh, and these become like a quick reaction force for the city, right? So by the time the troops leave their barracks, activists within the CNT were ready for them. Barcelona's Raval, the densely populated district just off the more tourist-friendly Rambler, had become known as a Bari Chinez. Um, that means Chinatown. <laughs> Not because Chinese people or people of any Asian extraction live there, uh, that's because they watched gangster movies about Chicago's Chinatown, and they were like, "Ah, oh, yeah, we we can go that hard." Uh, <laughs> okay, so they just they just called it that. Uh, Chris Elam has a great book on the construction of Chinatown. Uh, now people have been shooting each other in those streets for decades, right? But uh, mm. for once, everyone in the Raval was pointing their guns out. Every balcony in the Raval becomes a sniper's nest, and by the time the sun came up, it was an impenetrable fortress of the working class. And, cool. and at this time, the state would find itself begging the anarchists for support. 
and not the other way around. And I think that's maybe where we'll end it today uh, so that people can be sort of teetering on the edge of their seats to know what happens next. But thank you very much for joining me, Margaret. Um, yeah. Would you like to plug anything? Do you have any pluggables? Uh, well, I have a book that's available for pre-order. It's called We Won't Be Here Tomorrow. And if you like... Um, trans woman who robs guys and then feeds them to her mermaid lover or you like the um, the dead in Valhalla coming back and joining in an American civil war to fight against Nazis then you might like this book um, actually I think I read that story on this podcast this, the, mm-hmm. the yeah, you did. Viking you one did. Um, you fucking ruined the next episode because that's what happened as well I know, I know. Well, yeah. actually, oh, well. there's a different um, story that I didn't write. I think, oh no, there's one about um, uh, velociraptors in the Spanish <laughs> Civil War. Um, that <laughs> okay. That um, anyway, that's completely unrelated. Okay, so that is where you. I'm. That book is currently available for pre-order, and if you get it from AK Press or a couple other different independent bookstores, then it comes with a free art print that comes from the book, and so. If you like that, you could consider getting it or ask your library to get it. And you can follow me on the internet at Magpie Killjoy on Twitter and Margaret Killjoy on Instagram. That's do you my pluggables. Do have any podcasts? I have a podcast. I do. I actually have two podcasts. I, I have a podcast called Live Like the World is Dying, which is an individual and community preparedness podcast. And I also have a podcast on this very network. Really? Um, I do. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, cool. you, you all haven't noticed it yet. I've just been kind of uploading my stuff without checking with you all uh called cool people who did cool stuff which is all about history but in a fun way about stuff that cool yay i'm excited to get this to it right now thank you very much thanks for having me Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jean, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. 
Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah! Welcome back to It yeah. Could Happen Here. This is part two of It James. Could Happen Here, the podcast that fucks. All right, that's my job done today. Okay, part two of James's Congratulations, episode. Congratulations, Robert. Uh, the Spanish Robert. Civil War and the uh, the Antifa Olympics. That's right. Yep. Uh, Civil War week. Closing out with this one. Why uh, does the Olympics? Why did the Antifa Olympics hate freedom? Though is my question. Mm-hmm. The Antifa uh, Olympics are going around and destroying all of the balls. <laughs> yeah, they are. Uh, they're taking your children and uh, busloads of black-clad athletes are showing up in your cities to play does, sports. Th- this does make me think back briefly to when a couple of different anti-fascist groups in Seattle and Portland played uh, soccer, and it became a whole thing because yeah, there were. Like, <laughs> oh, I used to play anarchist soccer in New York mm-hmm. City. Yeah. And oh, that got that got canceled hard. Well, it's, it's, in Portland, it got canceled hard. Mm-hmm. It also, um, because it was in New York City, there was a bunch of like semi-famous actors who would come and play anarchist soccer, but then couldn't be asso- like visually associated. So like people would all mask up in solidarity whenever camera people would come by because yeah. like some famous actor was playing anarchist soccer in the park. That's very funny. Yeah, that's outstanding. More of that needed. Um, yeah. yeah, these anarchists, of course, were just busy doing the traditional anti-fascist thing of starting forest fires in Oregon before. Uh, oh, okay. Before the Civil War. So, anyway, pick, picking up from the last episode, where we left our heroes. Yeah, we're talking about the heroes, right? Uh, so, with the military marching towards the city and every balcony in the working-class revolt quickly becoming a sniper's nest, every rifle was needed at the barricades. The Spanish and Catalan tops took an unprecedented break from being bastards. And instead, significant elements of the Mossos de Squadra, Guardia Civil, and the elite paramilitary assault guards grabbed their handy carbines, rifles with names like Tiger and Destroyer. And <laughs> took, yeah, none of them are called Robert, sadly. Um, and took to the barricades in defense What a of missed democracy. opportunity. Right, See, this yeah. is why the Spanish lost. Get me my Robert. 
I can see it now. I'll t- I'm prepared to help you with the advertising at no cost. Just, just going to bob them right up. Mm-hmm. That's why they called them bobbies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, famously. Yeah, I think because- we need to make, I think it needs to be some sort of like nine-barreled electronic volley gun. I want to... <laughs> yeah. Something that could take out two, something that could take out at least two Japanese prime ministers at once. You only need two barrels for one prime minister, so you could get up to four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shoot That's through right. space and time. Um, yeah. All right. So they you uh, go back and get Junshiro Koizumi. Finally, bring him to justice <laughs> with a nine barrel pipe gun. Okay, so these people, right. so yeah. the cops and the anarchists are fighting alongside each other. Is that what you're That's telling correct. me? That's correct. Yep. The anarchists are pulling up paving stones, building barricades, which they had learnt in previous conflict with the state could stop light artillery, and they are welcoming the cops. It's worth pointing out that the heroes of day are not cops, and the heroes of day are very rarely cops. Instead, it's the ordinary people of Catalonia, right? Everyone from liberals to left libertarians runs to the barricades, but... The anarchist affinity groups, the anarchist uh, defense committees, are the mortar that holds together the resistance, right? They are experienced, they have plans, they provide impetus and inspiration to the working class. They are ready when their liberal government is not. Um, They had a pretty good handle on fighting in the streets of Barcelona too. This is their home turf, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Incidentally, we see this shit a lot. Like People who are good at fighting the cops become integral in fighting the state. Uh, It happened in the Maidan happened in Tahrir Square, both with like ultras, right? Like uh, football fans or people who go to football games that also like fighting cops. Um, So like, it's not unprecedented that the folks who are good at fighting the cops become integral at fighting the state when uh, state turns bad. Turns bad. Uh, (laughs) In (laughs) many cases, they also have more experience manipulating their weapons than the poorly trained conscripts because it would be pretty hard to have less. There's a little bit of a debate, a discussion about causality here. Does the coup fail where it does because the cops remain loyal? Or does the beachhead established by the working class allow the cops, who were sympathetic but not convinced, to safely remain loyal, right? Mm -hmm. So across Spain, it's it's not quite the same as the US. The The cops are better trained and better armed than the military. But they often hung back until the working class had taken decisive action, right? Um, Yeah, see which way the wind's blowing. Yeah, exactly. Like they um, sometimes, like occasionally, they will do some sort of king shit. Like uh, in the one city, they uh, the couple of the assault guards are their officers side with a coup, so they get shot by their own men. <laughs> just, just you love to see. Uh, in other places, they sign up to do nothing. In some places, the soldiers come for them, where they're like, "Fuck it, it's on now." But in, in other places, they join with the working class, as they do in Barcelona. The civil guard is older. Um, civil Guard tends to be in more rural places where the coup tends to be more successful and Civil Guard mm-hmm. tends to be less loyal to the Republic. The Civil Guard in Barcelona waits until noon. Uh, the coup is really defeated by noon. By noon, the soldiers are holed up in the food buildings and it's very clear that they haven't won. <laughs> and then they come in on horseback, clip-clopping <laughs> down the street, doing the raised fist salute, uh, like just milking it uh, to mm-hmm. announce their sort of loyalty to the Republic. They did have... Better guns and better marksmen, so they were helpful in assaulting the buildings that came next. Mm-hmm. I was like, um, all right, all right, everyone, we're, we're here. We saved the day. Yeah, here we come. Thin blue line. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens all across Barcelona is that the tremendously poorly organized army meet well-organized, well-entrenched resistance, and they're killed or turned back. Um, 
So I want to give uh, one example of this from Avenida Icaria. Uh, it's related by Beevor in his book. Now, what they'd done in Icaria was taken out huge rolls of newsprint, like the stuff that you put newspaper on, and rolled them into the streets to make a barricade, right? Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Like, they, the right. degree to which people were, like, ready in, uh, like, amusing ways is, uh, is a great part of this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that was what they had available to them. Seemed yeah. to be stopping bullets. So Lots they of layers is the way to stop bullets. So It is, yeah. Lots of layers of newsprint. Um, don't Paper armor is a thing fest. in yeah. uh, different places. So, <laughs> Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it certainly seemed to work here. And they had uh, big old guns, like uh, Spanish mouses. So the fighting stops for a second. And a small group of workers and an assault guard close the distance between themselves and two 75mm field guns. But they're holding their rifles above their heads. They signaled they wanted to talk and not to fight. And so for a few minutes, they give a passionate speech, informing the soldiers they'd been lied to, that the anarchists were not in revolt, that they were in fact part of a coup, and that they should not fire on their proletarian brothers. It's not exactly clear what they said, but whatever they said, it worked. And very slowly, the seed of class consciousness was planted. And oh. it bloomed in about the time it takes to turn a 75mm gun 180 degrees, load it, and fire it at your officers. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, it's just so good. Like... these powerful anecdotes of like someone just being like huh yeah now that you phrase it like that we're on the same team let me turn this artillery gun around (laughs) yeah i also just love to think of the guy who's just been like uh previously like for god and country (laughs) yeah gets vaporized by a 75 millimeter gun yeah Uh, it's truly magnificent stuff so the popular Olympians are still in town, right? That uh, They turned up to show off as anti-fascists, but uh, they didn't really expect to be showing off their anti-fascist bona fides quite like this. But lots of them were winning participants. The Americans were down by the Bocadilla market. You've probably been there. You've been to Barcelona. You've probably bought an edible arrangement. Um, that's what tourists like to do. Um, and they watched the streets around them turn into battlegrounds. You can see the bullet holes in the hotel where they stayed and some of the cafes around there. And, but some of these bullet holes, it should be mentioned, are from a sadder and altogether different battle a year later. And, but this day, they popped out of their hotel rooms to take a look at what was going on, got shot at, and then went back inside and then popped That's out of different reasonable. balconies. <laughs> yeah. Well, they had this thing of popping out of different balconies like, I don't understand what the fuck is going on in their heads, where they're like, people keep shooting at us. Let's continue to try different balconies. <laughs> I could see doing that, just being so yeah. curious. Right, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'd all made friends with Spanish people, right? They were just, mm-hmm. uh, they were not the athletes of today. Like, they were out late drinking every night. And they were really bummed very quickly, very upset. They're like, well, we need to get stuck in. Like, you know, we're young, healthy people. Um, in their diaries, they also write about seeing the Spanish women at the barricades. And just being like, oh, fuck yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is outstanding. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they're, they're just like, uh, because they're very committed, right? Like these, these anti-fascists are very committed to, uh, to gender equality. Like they really are. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's demonstrable in all the communications about the Popular Olympics. When they send stuff to unions and unions, like here's a team, it's 10 dudes. They're like, well, that's fucking disappointing. Like, where are the women? Well, what are we doing here? <laughs> like, Hey, how are we making the world better with just a bunch of dudes exercising together? Like, um, so that it really is, I think, a very genuine commitment for them. And uh, yeah, they're, they're so pumped 
so when the fighting lulls, uh, these guys come running out. Uh, and they saw those cavalry horses, right? The cavalry horses that they'd expected to parade down the Rambler in a victorious coup mm-hmm. had now been stacked on top of each other as barricades. Um, Sorry, the horses? Yes. Uh, they, they used the horses as cover. You can find pictures of this, I actually. Mean, yeah, okay. Yeah, it kind of sucks because you. the horses didn't want to be fascists. Yeah. But I think you can take some solace in knowing that the people who are riding them also got killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's true. Well, you say the horses didn't want to be fascist. <laughs> this, is, this is in the intersection of shit you enjoy, Robert, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, shitting on horses and hating fascists. Yeah. Which are the same. No, but see, <laughs> horses would be very good at shitting on fascists. From a great well, height. Yeah. Yeah, I know. R.I.P. Horses. You did yeah. nothing wrong. Uh, Paul went out for the horses. Uh, so... <laughs> Charlie Burley runs down into the street, right? He's pretty accustomed to fighting. He's a boxer. He is a mixed-race kid who grew up in Pittsburgh. Uh, he's refused to go to the 1936 Olympics because he doesn't want any of Hitler's bullshit. And he doesn't speak Spanish. So all he, need, all he knows how to do is pick up a crowbar, start levering up paving stones, and helping to build a barricade. <laughs> yeah. And so that's what he does. Universal language. Yeah. Breaking shit. Um, and so uh, he just gets stuck in and now them do right uh, these barricades he built like I said they were so strong that they would stop light artillery across the city whipped and snaps of bullets cracked across the wide boulevards that cut through the regimented grid of the exemplar snipers were stationed in the bell towers of churches they picked off the newly formed people's militia as they dashed between the barricades carrying ammunition and food a French athlete right wing, right wing snipers that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so mm-hmm. you will definitely read that they were priests, but they're not. I don't think uh, just a. You know, if you're going to put a sniper okay. up there, you want to put someone up there who knows how to use a rifle. But um, yeah, that makes yes. sense. Yes, yeah. So they, they probably weren't priests. That doesn't mean the priests were not abetting them. I'm sure they were at some points. Um, but yeah, uh, this is why the churches get burned. Yeah, it's one of the reasons. Uh, a group of German exiles suspected their company's diplomats might be involved. Uh, so they raided their homes and found massive stashes of weapons, <laughs> uh, which is great. Uh, the, the Republic had very liberal asylum policies, so you have a ton of German, Italian, anti-fascists already in town. Mm-hmm. Um, elsewhere, people found each other in the streets or joined up with pre-existing affinity groups to form Centuria. Uh, Centuria is a Latin word for units of 100 soldiers. They're broadly based on language, and they're named after some famous leftists like uh, Tom Mann, uh, Karl Marx or um, Ernst Salomon, right? The founder of uh, Antifa with a capital A. Uh, later, these uh, would become the nucleus of the international brigades. But the international brigades were the army of the Comintern, and the Centurio weren't. They didn't Comintern have means the, basically like under Soviet control. Yes, that's right. They're Soviet controlled okay. communist international. So they were doctrinally Stalinist, mm-hmm. more or less, right? Uh, okay. And certainly, like, you can read a shit ton about the international brigades going from a broad popular front leftist alliance to mm-hmm. uh, straight up Stalinist and uh, what that does to their, their desire to fight and their ability to fight. And uh, I would suggest that it's not great, but it's a uh, story as old as time. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, draw your own conclusion. Cecil Elby is very good on that if you want to read his book. So these Centuria don't have officers and they certainly don't have commissars, right? And uh, off they roll uh, to fight the Nazis. 
By 11 a.m., General Goded has landed from Mallorca. He was hoping to command the city, which he, the nationalists thought the Barcelona would be the easiest city for them, right? They thought it was a soft target. Um, they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, again, uh, yeah, not smart. Uh, it was only through the intervention of Caridad Mercader, uh, her son incidentally killed Trotsky, uh, that his life was spared. Uh, he holed up in the headquarters. The headquarters was overrun. They wanted to execute him immediately. She intervened. She says, no, you know, we got we to do this pretense of justice. So we put him on the prison ship Uruguay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he's killed a little later after a court-martial. He's executed a few weeks later in the Monchuit Castle. That day in the Monchuit Castle, the troops had shot their officers. <laughs> the en- and the NCOs had leaded a raid on the armory uh. where they began distributing guns to anarchists. Hell. Again. Yeah, very cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Love to see it. The Catalan left and the Catholic Church uh, had some historical disagreements, right? Uh, The church had a long history of violence towards the left, and the left had an equally long history of violence towards the church. Mm -hmm. The church had been part of brutal oppression of the working class, right? Victimization of of people, uh, especially of working class women. And uh, as troops withdrew from the city in July 1936, anarchists began to take revenge against the churches. Nuns' corpses were disinterred. Priests accused of collaboration were executed. By the afternoon, the sky began to fill with smoke. Churches burned all over the city. Sometimes they had these things called checkers, which were like revolutionary tribunals, where they put the priests or the churches themselves. Later outside Madrid, there's a famous photo of them like executing a giant statue of Jesus Christ after putting it on trial. (laughs) (laughs) That's what's in the future for Robert Evans. That is is a pretty funny bit. Ah, it's good. There's a firing squad and everything. Uh, That is like a pretty good dedication to the bit. You got to, whether or not you agree with it, you have to respect it. Yeah, yeah, the uh, yeah, I, uh, I it's a good T-shirt. Maybe we could, you know, return to merch uh, and have that that image. But yeah, so some Catholics rebuilt it. Deadly. It's uh, it's no longer riddled with bullet holes in its face. Well, let's time to t- well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what that means. <laughs> yes, it's time to kill God. Um, <laughs> Storm heaven. Yep, and uh, redistribute all the stuff harps for everyone yeah oh people wore robes actually uh this became a bit of an issue because people would be like lol look at me i'm wearing a robe i pretend to be a priest and then other people will be like fuck you priest and shoot them Uh, (laughs) 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 yeah don't do that actually robes for everyone bad idea at a time of uh, anti-clerical violence Uh, what you can do is drink all the communion wine which is what they did uh, I'm sorry, all the blood of Christ is what they drink. Yes, uh, yes, I'm sorry. Well, actually, I guess uh, it only becomes that in the stomach. Yeah, no. I'm it, a bad Catholic. I don't remember any of this. Or It's just God. wine until uh, they, until they do the thing. Yeah, okay. And say the words, and then uh, something special happens. That's 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 okay. the uh, the okay. Eucharist. So it's the pre-blood. Yeah, yeah. it's pre-blood. It's just sweet wine. Mm-hmm. By the 20th of July... The military was all but done for in a city, right? But some of them had retreated back to their barracks immediately. They came out, promptly got shot at by a shit ton of people and went, nope, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, pulled a 180, returned to the barracks. So smarter than the tourists at the hotel. Yes. Although, uh, I don't know about that because uh, these guys end up dying there and the tourists do not. Uh, well, that's because so they're pra- side one, but... Yes, yeah, yeah, true. Uh, well... 
I, I would be lying if I said the tourists do not, because one of those tourists does. Uh, a guy called Albert Alchakin, uh, mm. they called him Chick. He was a coach of the team, community college professor, actually. Uh, mm. And uh, he leaves, goes back to America uh, and just can't deal with like missing. It's not so much at the guilt of not being there. It's uh, And I think some of us maybe can relate to this in a way, right? Like the missing of being there too. Yeah, the phone like that. Yeah, and how special yep. it feels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Robert's off. Uh, Robert can can relate to this, right? Like sometimes it's some time you feel the most alive is when you're trying not to be dead. But also like this was a fucking awesome time, right? Like mm-hmm. the cops have joined the working class. The churches are on fire. Uh, the bosses are running for the hills. And the army has just had its ass handed to it by like a bunch of men and women in blue overalls. Like I can imagine it felt pretty cool. Um so he goes home and then he decides to come back. Uh, he comes back with his wife. Uh, his wife runs the first art therapy program uh, for children uh, traumatized wow. by conflict. Yeah, the, the, wow. um, the pictures are at UCSD. Uh, I used to go sit with them all the time. Uh, just kind of, I don't know, it feels like a special place, like a nice connection. Yeah, that's um, the kind of stuff that gets like left out of history too much too, right? Is these contributions like, and these like developments that come from political radicals that are like not just the 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 gun the robert you know or the uh you know seizing of workplaces but the developing of art therapy for people dealing with traumatic event that rules yeah absolutely right like these people made homemade bombs but they also like made it easier for kids to process their trauma um, yeah <laughs> and, and like that's what anarchism is folks um yeah. but yeah uh, jenny berman uh they hyphenated their last names uh berman chaken wow. uh also yeah advanced <laughs> Yeah, highly progressive. 1930s. Yeah, his wife, uh, Jenny, was definitely the radical. And she she sort of brought him on and, and he was like, okay. yeah, fucking, you got it. Um, so yeah, he goes back. Uh, you can see the pictures uh, at UCSD. They're online too. But Al dies in a, in a sort of chaotic retreat to the International Brigades. Uh, no, no one knows where, right? Uh, I'm trying to write a book about him. I have some of his diaries. Uh, just an inspirational guy in a lot of ways. Very nice yeah. guy. Uh He's also like, he sort of draws a lot of uh, disdain from the other passengers on the boat when they're crossing the first time mm-hmm. uh, because the passengers keep getting mad that the black folks and the white folks are eating at the same table at dinner from the Popular Olympics team. Oh, uh, and uh-huh. he's just like super mad at this and it's like, why would you be that way? So it just keeps like getting, uh, and he is a wrestler, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's a collegiate wrestler. He went to Olympic trials. So <laughs> just keeps getting in people's faces about it, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which like yeah uh, is yeah. i guess being an ally or something but um Does just yes yeah, the war yes jenny berman is in uh there's a film called the good fight okay uh which is about the american volunteers and you can see her talking about him cool um yeah i think it's it's obviously a pretty difficult experience for her talking about him but uh uh yeah. and i'm sure the whole thing is pretty rough given you know the uh things that happen afterwards but yeah uh yeah. Again, a wonderful person. She's passed away now, but yeah, actually, it's it's the interview, it's the full interview with her that I'm waiting for, so I can write about him. Cool. Um, but yes, she does. Uh, look up the Good Fight; it's a good film. So on the 20th of July, the anarchists are assembling outside these barracks. Right? Uh, they had the support of the police, but they didn't want it anymore, and so <laughs> they assembled their own troops instead. Right? <laughs> Garcia Oliver, Abad de Santillon, Ascaso, and Duruti are on some chad shit. And uh, they do what the anarchists did at this time, which is 
uh, they lead a frontal charge on the barracks where there are still <laughs> machine guns. Um, so uh, they are brave, but perhaps not tactically astute. Um, I've, I've read so. about this where basically one of the problems that people had like strategically about the anarchists is that the anarchists in Spain were so uh, fervent in their beliefs that they basically were like, hooray, soon I will be a martyr and like all charged at machine guns and like weren't always the most strategic. Does that map to your understanding? Or yeah. That- in the early days of the Civil War, they're like, because they had been raised for decades of propaganda of the deed, yeah. right? Uh, and like propaganda of the deed is saying like, you know, like you can die as a hero and become an example to the working class and you will elevate the cause. It's as close mm-hmm. to martyrdom as you can get in, in an atheist yeah. political belief, I think. And yeah, so they were just, uh, I don't like, like, Ascaso, right? Ascaso is a famous anarchist leader. Uh, Ascaso is a guy who dies, uh, like, literally leading the charge frontally on a machine gun at this mm-hmm. time, at this barracks, right? He dies in less than 24 hours after the war has started. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a member of this uh, Nosotros group with Deruti and, and others, uh, and Garcia Oliver. And uh, he's the one who gives his name to the pistol, right? So uh, in Terrassa, uh the CMT, the um, the anarchists, anarcho-syndicalists, take over an arms factory, uh, take it over, They've re- the workers run the factory, and they start making these pistols with his name mm-hmm. on. Uh, so it's like the only gun that is That's not cool. in some way morally compromised. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess in that sense he goes on to kill a lot of fascists. Um Yeah. But yeah, they 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 don't want the help of the police. They don't want the tactical advice. Daruti actually later is very good at this. He has regular army officers embedded with his column and he listens mm-hmm. to them and that allows him to be more successful than the other anarchists. Okay. Um but yeah, he uh their battle cry is Adelante hombres del Cente, Cente, which is like, you know, forward men of the CNT. They had women too. Uh, but I guess that's not what they were going for. And they took the barracks along with 30,000 rifles. Wow. Pretty much all of those would be in the hands of working people within a couple of days. Wow. Yeah, that's a vast... Like, this is a decent slice of the Republic's weapons, right? Yeah. Uh, until they get resupplied later. And interestingly, like the, the Soviet Union and Mexico supply them, but they, the Republican government in Madrid doesn't want people supplying the anarchists. So only um, CZ or Vazor, the Czech uh, gun company, uh, mm-hmm. are willing to illicitly violate two different arms embargoes to supply the anarchists later in the yes. war. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Based CZ. Yeah. Maybe we can have f- them be the advert for this episode. Finally, a, ca- a, 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 a solid case for the hammer-fired arm in, in, in modern days. <laughs> we, we have to honor yep. the legacy of CZ. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, the only the only morally correct firearm to buy. The Glock wouldn't have done that, motherfuckers. Nope. No. Yeah, don't see mm-hmm. any Glocks in, in anarchist hands. Uh, yeah, That's buy right. a thirty-two ACP because it also killed Hitler. It's the most anti-fascist mm-hmm. gun that you can that you can own. <laughs> Hitler killed Hitler, but you know <laughs> we don't have to go there. <laughs> the uh, real anti-fascist. critical support to adolf hitler (laughs) or you could say yeah well you know who else tried to kill hitler hitler he did once before uh in 1923 after the failed munich putsch but Mm -hmm. his friend putzi hanstangle's wife who he had a crush on stopped him from killing himself which was which was a mistake yeah yeah she let the team down um so see that's where cz came in giving him an efficient way to kill himself with no wives around. Uh, he did have a wife around, didn't he? 
See? Oh, well. Thank you, CZ. Hitler's dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, And with that, let's go back to Spain. Uh, Catalonia, I guess. Um, So the French Popular Olympics team left that day. Uh, They sang the International Isle uh, from the deck of their boat as they pulled out the port. A few days later on the Rambler, a parade was organised. The various nations of the Popular Olympics marched down the street, led inexplicably uh, by some bagpipers who had arrived with the British team. Hell yeah, Um, that's how you know they're international, bagpipes. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, why why not? I I love that, like, yeah, some anti-fascist bagpipers had been recruited uh, by this point. Um, They all sang the international in their own languages, uh, did the, uh, the race for salute that would become the popular front salute. And they heard a speech, and in the speech they were told, you've come for the games, but you've remained for the greater front, in battle and in triumph. Now your task is clear. You'll go back to your countries and spread the word, the news of what you've seen in Spain. So some of them went back, and some of them stayed. All in all, about 200 of them actually uh, stayed to fight, or came back to fight. Um, Some of the names are Bill Scott. Uh, He was an Irishman who came for the games, uh, he uh, he went back and forth between Spain and Ireland a bunch, wrote in some wrote some letters to newspapers to encourage other people to join. Uh, his big slogan was a victory for fascism in Spain is a victory for fascism in Ireland. Um, uh, the, That's the same slogan to... that the other side used too, right? <laughs> yes, but the, uh, the Irish volunteers who fought for the fascists were fucking exceptionally useless. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, may have excelled more than Irish volunteers who fought for the anti-fascists or killing fascists, um, <laughs> which like, I guess critical support to them. Um, he fights in the Battle of Madrid, Bill Scott, where he gets shot in the neck, uh, Orwell style. So there you go, Robert. Maybe they really were sticking their necks out. Mm-hmm. Um, you got Otto Bosch. Uh, Otto Bosch was a lover of novelist and poet Muriel Ruckheiser. Uh, he was a cabinet maker, a sprinter, uh, and lit- an actual card-carrying Antifa member. Uh, and now he was a soldier. Um, he also died. Uh, the sad part about this part of the war is everyone dies uh, pretty quickly afterwards. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really sad. Uh, these people are, you know, as, as good as people come. And uh, they all end up dead. But let's not talk about that. I want to focus on the, the victorious part. Um, okay. So, that evening, right? Durucci... Garcia Oliver and Abad de Santillon go and meet with compans. Ascaso is dead, uh, right? Because he was on his heroics. Um, they're still in their monos. They're still covered in blood. <laughs> and they're still carrying their weapons, uh, which is the way one should meet with a, uh, a politician. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so he gives them this little speech. And I, like some people say it's apocryphal. I don't really give a fuck. I think it's nice. I'm going to read it. It's not very long. Um, firstly... I must say that the CNT and the FI have never been treated as their true importance merited. You have always been harshly persecuted, and I, with much regret, was forced by political necessity to oppose you, even though I was once with you. Today you are the masters of the city and of Catalonia, because you alone have conquered the fascist military. And I hope that you will not forget that you did not lack the help of the loyal members of my party. But you have won, and all is in your power. If you do not need me as president of Catalonia, tell me now, and I'll become just another soldier in the fight against fascism. If, on the other hand, you believe that I, my party, my name, my prestige can be of use, then you can depend on me and my loyalty as a man who is convinced that a whole past of shame is dead. So that's nice. That's intense. Uh, that's cool. That's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's I, interesting, you know? 
Right, it's fascinating. I think it's the clearest we get to a person at a time being like, in the last 24 hours, I have gone from president to a guy who has to ask the anarchist for a rifle so I can fight. Yeah. Um, and like, it's, uh, you know, people get on their Zelensky stuff, but uh, this is kind of different, I guess. You know, like, it's good to find someone who cares about a cause more than power. Yeah, as a rule, if it's your job to be in charge of people, I'm probably not a fan of that job existing. But if when it comes down to it, you 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 throw down rather than hide in a bunker or flee the country to live in exile in, I don't know, whatever friendly country, then that's better than the alternative. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think, yeah, yeah, being more attached to this and to your self-preservation or your power, I think is admirable. <laughs> Um, For example, if Joe Biden had burned down the third precinct himself, I think a lot of people would feel more positively towards him. <laughs> he he did though. <laughs> Robert, you didn't. Um, we're not supposed to talk about this on the podcast, guys. You're oh, right. You're oh, right. This is sorry. this is. Yeah, we're keeping that Yet one again. under wraps until yeah. the midterms really start to heat up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and that's, released, a, that's an October and we surprise. The video of Joe Biden with a firebomb. <laughs> I was told that he had a uh, a can of Axe body spray and a lighter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how he normally rolls yeah. when he's in block. And, all right. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. That image is like so cursed that I'm like... Joe Biden in block. <laughs> doing the smile like he's in the Camaro, but just holding the Axe body spray and a cigarette lighter. <laughs> but everyone can figure out it's him because he keeps touching people and everyone's keeping yeah. He's, he's sniffing everybody's hair, yeah, yeah. asking if he can smell the inside of their balaclavas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Uncle Joe, a hero, mm-hmm. a true anti-fascist. Yeah. Um, are you are you going dark, Brandon, on us? Oh God, are we are we gonna have to explain what dark Brandon is on the pod? No, eventually? I, don't, I don't think we need to. I don't think that's no. ever going to be relevant. No, <laughs> I think um, we'll just say let's go, Brandon. Look it up, kids. Know, just type "Dark Brandon" into your Twitter search bar and see what happens. And educate yourselves. I'm oh, gonna do yeah. this right now, but please continue. Yeah, please do, because I don't have a fucking clue. No, I have uh, no idea uh, what they're talking about. No, <laughs> I'm not on the internet enough, uh, uh, and I don't think I will ever want to be. Um, so things go differently all across the country, right? Um, the Navy. I'm waiting to hear Margaret squeal or scream or cry. I. Uh, I just don't understand. Um, okay. I think it's that he's a vampire. Yes. Go fucking go ahead. Tell us about Dark Brandon. No, I don't know. It's just weird memes. <laughs> it's I think scary. Robert knows. I don't want to know. Uh yeah, you don't need to know. It's fine. Okay. It's okay. it's it's a good time. It's 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 a good time on the internet. That's all mm-hmm. that Dark Brandon is. All right. The Navy doesn't fall for the coup, right? Uh and this leads to this spectacular uh Exchange between the crew of uh, Jaime Primero, the, uh, the James I battleship, right, and the Ministry of Marine. Crew to Ministry of Marine, we have encountered serious resistance from the commands and officers on board. Crew to Ministry of Marine, we have subdued them by force. Urgently request instructions as to bodies. Ministry to Marine to crew, lower the bodies overboard with respectful solemnity. What is your present position? Um, so what they've done there is the officers have declared for the crew, for the coup, and the mini- the sailors on board the ship have killed them and thrown them over the edge. Right? <laughs> subdued um, by force. What do we do with the yeah. bodies, the people we have subdued? 
just the most amazing radio message. Yeah. <laughs> like, like the officers turn out to be chuds, and then like brief pause. What do you want us to do with their bodies? Is uh, again king shit. So it's a few days before the battle lines really get drawn uh, as to who is where, who's on what side of the Spanish Civil War. It's a few days before it becomes clear that this is a civil war. Because without boats, the rebels seem to be in trouble. But the fascists came to their aid with planes to airlift the troops from Africa. The Republic had more troops and more access to supplies, and it looked like they were going to win a war of attrition. That doesn't work out, because France, the UK, and the United States abandoned Spain. And the fascists do not abandon Franco. But I don't really want to finish there. I want to backtrack and think about how many times in the past or the present, the working class of a city is spontaneously organized to prevent an army from entering that city. And especially in the age of the tank and the bomber, I can't really think of any. And I don't know if you guys can, but I couldn't come up with one. I got nothing. Yeah, anyone? I mean, other than Kiev, kind of. Yeah, kind yeah, of spontane- true. Some of it was at least spontaneous, but yeah. Yeah, mm. it wasn't against their own army. Like, they had an army. Uh, no, that is, yeah. yeah. I mean, you could, there are pieces of that, and it was it was not as organized uh, or clearly successful in, you know, the Holy Week uprisings and uh, the Watts riots and stuff. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, um, yeah. pieces of it. Yeah, I mean, even like uh, in Minneapolis, right? Like, uh, yeah, pieces of it in Minneapolis. Where the state didn't exist for a while. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh <sighs> This, this revolution is somewhat unique, at least in that, right? And what happens afterwards uh, and what happened in the Civil War isn't what I want to end on. You can see this kind of idea in Ken Loach's film, Land and Freedom, uh, mm-hmm. that, that this was a romantic failure. And I don't think that's true. I think that the, the only way for the Civil War to succeed was doing what it did, for the Republic to succeed was doing what it did well and what it did well with harnessing the enthusiasm and passion of the working class people to build a better world for themselves. When it became not worth fighting and dying for something, then the war was already lost for a lot of people. Trying to mass behind a conventional war effort doesn't make sense when your enemy has every advantage in a conventional war effort. But I don't want to focus on that. I want to focus on the last week of July 1936, when the city's in the hands of the people, when there are no cops and no bosses. But people go back to work as collectives. When there's no money, but people distribute food to people who need it. All across Spain, and not just at the barrel of a gun, people collectivized. They collectivized in Castile and they socialized industry in Valencia. And it's a remarkable moment in human history. It doesn't last more than a year, but I think it shows us that uh, this this other future was possible, right? The the path we took from 1936 to the present day was not the best one, Uh, but... I like yeah. to think that just for a just for a little while, we could have done better, um, and uh, I think that's where I want to end. Really, is thinking about how we could do better. And um, uh, if people want to read books, since this has already been a long episode, I will say uh, Helen Graham's very short introduction is very good. Um, Anthony Beevor's newer book is good, and you can get an audio book. Uh, Julian Casanova is one of my favorite writers in Spanish, and some of his stuff is translated into English. Uh, Augustine Guillemot's book, Ready for the Revolution, on uh, the affinity groups of the CNT, and, and Chris Elam's stuff on Barcelona is excellent. Um, if you're in Barcelona, Nick Lloyd's walking tours are excellent. Um, but yeah, I hope that's enough there. 
you can watch Ken Loach's film. You can watch, uh, I think it's called Parallel Mothers. That's on Netflix. Um, a couple of good films. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Margaret, again, for joining me yeah. to uh, he- hear me drone on about the Spanish Civil War for an hour. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, um, I'm into it. I, uh, mm-hmm. I didn't know. I, I've only been learning the, the details more recently. You know, I've, I've always just heard about it in, in broad strokes and the like, you know, a lot of people like talking about what it means, right? But talking about what it means is cool. But the stuff that's like really interesting to me is the stuff that actually like makes it matter is the the person who shows up and, uh, you know, develops ways to deal with trauma by art therapy and the people who bravely steal dynamite and become named named Rosa the Dynamiter. What was what was her name? Yeah, Rosa la Dinamitera. Yeah, yeah. Um, she loses a hand. Yeah, uh, it's better than continues. Rosa the Riveter. I mean, no offense to Rosa <laughs> yes. the Riveter, but Rosa the Dynamiter is 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 doing well. Uh, um, what Rosie a the Dynamiter go after all of the libraries keeping the books imprisoned. Free <laughs> knowledge. The yeah, librarians the gatekeepers of thought. I really like Traffic librarians. <laughs> Take I didn't want to get canceled, but um, <laughs> I like libraries and librarians. You, you all aren't ready for this discourse, Margaret. But your lib, li- lib, Margaret Killjoy yeah, take. Your librarians Basically are problematic. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we know you're a CIA asset because of your mm-hmm. pro-library stance. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Classic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, capitalist infrastructure. Look, what? Where did the CIA train all those people to overthrow governments? The School of the Americas. What does every school have? Books. See, I think school is the problem because that's the school of Americas. Is there's two Mm. things wrong with school of Americas? It's school and America. (laughs) (laughs) Most most of the problem is the school part. I think (laughs) the the real problem with school of the Americas that had school in the name, and we can't have that. That is that's an oppressive hierarchical system of learning. Unbelievable. If Amerigo Vespucci never came here, maybe things would be different. Maybe even better. Wow, anti-Italian slander. I'm here for it. Well, <laughs> okay. let's all end on that note. Fuck Italy. Yep, and fuck traffic lights. Margaret, do you have anything to plug? Uh, I do. Uh, people can get my, they can pre-order my book that is all about why traffic lights are bad. Um, it's called We Won't Be Here Tomorrow, and it's written from the point of view of a traffic light that knows, knows it's about to be abolished. It's out from AK Press. Um <laughs> Who uses the red and black flag as the logo, and much like the anarchists in the Spanish Civil War who developed the red and black flag, which is to reference, of course, the negation of the red, because the red in the traffic light is what stops you. Um, and so the black is the negation right. of the red in this in this case. Yeah. And yeah. that's what happens when you disconnect a traffic light from power. It goes black. Yeah. Exactly. No one's disconnecting shit, Robert. People are shooting the traffic lights. And you know what? A- AK, <laughs> Just do you know what clear. AK Press do you know do you know what AK Press sells? Books. Oh, well, (laughs) books and and books. Where where do books get kept? Libraries. That's right. That's right. Guantanamo. It's it's all. It's your. Everyone is in on it. Okay. Well, if Mm -hmm. you don't want to be part of the evil world, you can do what uh, is clearly good, which is listen to podcasts and create parasocial relationships. (laughs) Yes, the unproblematic medium of podcasting. And if you want to create a parasocial relationship with me. You can listen to my podcasts, one of which is called Live Like the World is Dying. It's an individual and community preparedness podcast. And the other one is called Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff, which is all about people who defend libraries from people like you. Um, 
and anti-learning nihilist radicals yeah yeah anti-library action that's right (laughs) (laughs) that's right that's what the ala is isn't it that's that's that and that is why i fly the black and gray <laughs> I'm just That's making fun of people you. now. Uh, Never mind. All right. All right. I was, all right. Thank you, Margaret, yeah, for joining us. My friend did yeah, once did. make me an anarcho goth flag that was black and then black lace. Um, That's great. So, uh, thanks for having uh, me. On. I would, I would fly that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening, uh, James. Where can people find you online? Uh, I'm all over the internet. Uh, you can just put in my name at James Stout on Twitter. Um, sometimes I write things I will talk about them there great well you can find me at I write okay you can follow the show on That's right. at, at, by cool zone <laughs> media and happen here pod and send any complaints to at hung, uh, sorry no send at yeah, hungry bow tie no send any complaints <laughs> to at I write okay uh, okay yeah it's okay I don't read responses <laughs> bye 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 Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man, Marie's a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. 
Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It Could Happen Here is the podcast that this is, where we talk about things that are happening here. Generally, things falling apart. Um, Sometimes things getting put back together. Today, we have a story that I wasn't sure if we were ever going to cover. In brief, we're going to be talking about a a group called Black Hammer that is, on its surface, uh, a leftist, uh, anti-colonial political organization, um, and in reality is more or less a cult. Um, the reason we're talking about them is that someone is now dead, connected with them. The story is interesting and messy and says a lot about the way social media works today and the way that the United States is essentially like 40 different cults in a trench coat. Um, so uh, today I'm here with James Stout, uh, and we are talking with journalist W.F. Thomas, uh, Thomas, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you, how, how are you doing today? Uh, today is a day. Yeah. <clears throat> um, this story is, stuff is still coming out. Yeah. Um, about an hour ago, charges were finally posted, um, for the cult leader. Um, but that's further along. <laughs> Yeah. In the story. Uh, if you hear chirping in the background, those are four live chickens. So my apologies. Oh, little babies. I just got rabbits that I, I have now living in my, my chicken uh, facility, and they seem to be thriving. It's nice. I like having little animals around. All right. So who are Black Hammer, and uh, how, did, how did they get uh, to the present position? So I think we should probably start with, like, I know 2019, right, is kind of when these these folks sort of start to come on the uh, the scene. Yeah, um, you know, you could take this story back a lot mm-hmm. further. Okay, too. Well, let's do that. Um, so <clears throat> sometime in the late 80s, um, Augustus Romaine Jr. is born. Okay. Um, this is the person we're commonly known as. Gazi Kadzo, um, they use they, them pronouns, yeah. who would go on to be the leader of this group. Um, you know, Kadzo grew up in Stone Mountain outside of Atlanta, um, and in the early 2010s had kind of a lifestyle blogger YouTube thing going on, um, was a self-professed Cosmo's biggest fan, and generally seemed like they were trying to get famous. Yeah, like influencer style famous, right? This was not at all political at this period. Yeah. Point. Yeah. And um, that's going to be kind of the red thread through this story is Kodzo. I'm going to refer to them as Kodzo. 
sure. Augustus Romain Jr. Um, wanting to be famous is kind of, unfortunately, the main thing that drives most of what has happened um, at some point, you know, in the mid 2010s, um, Kodzo took this turn and started making more incendiary videos. Um, I don't have them directly in front of me, so I don't want to misquote them. Um, but kind of like going at pushing this concept, like white people are evil, um, going for this um, very specific type of leftism. And um, Ghazi Kodzo gets take un, taken under the wing of, and I'm going to mispronounce this name, uh, Omali Yeshitela. Um, and this is a person who is leading a group in St. Petersburg, Florida, called the African People's Socialist Party. Um, and African People's Socialist Party was part of this larger thing called the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. This, I don't know if they're still around, but you know their their ideology was third world communism, um, African internationalism, that type of thing. And um, what is? Let's talk a little bit about the word Uhuru because that's something. If you if you've ever been in and around Proud Boys, uh, first off, I'm I'm sorry, it's not a fun experience generally, but they. They like to shout Uhuru. Um, and I understand that that's kind of related one way or the other, the other to this. Yeah. So um, I don't have it directly in front of me what Uhuru means. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the reason probably say that is because of Ghazi Kodzo. Yeah. There were times, several times when Kodzo spoke, made appearances with Gavin McInnes, uh, founder of the Proud Boys. And Kodzo generally became and still is treated as a lol cow, um, kind of this target for derision to poke at, to see what is this person doing, which is still happening right now, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Kazo rose through the ranks of this group um, and then eventually found out that this is basically a cult. Uh, the African People's Socialist Party um, had a specific focus on membership from colonized people, people of color. Um, but it turns out this was being steered entirely by a group of white people. So it's out of the ashes of this experience, this abusive experience, um, this co-like group. Kodzo, along with some other people, leave this group and they go on to form Black Hammer in February of 2019, which the original name was the Black Hammer Organization. Um, and there's some really good write-ups, um, especially Red Voice. Uh, Devil yeah, Voice. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely recommend that. Um, and there yeah, are... I, I think you broke out for a second. So the title of that article is The Devil Wears a Dashiki. It's like six, seven parts, but it, it, it's really good, comprehensive. Yeah. And that gets into a lot of what I... That's where I get a lot of this information from. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were additionally what would happen is some of these people who founded this group, Black Hammer Organization, who are also parts of the African People's Socialist Party, um, would disavow Ghazi Kadza, would disavow Black Hammer, and have kind of their own statement about, here's what happened, you know, in which they say, hey, we never recovered from this experience in this traumatic group, in this cult-like group, and instead went on to found this new one. And we're very, you know, it was kind of failed from the start to become this other cult-like group. 
So just to clarify on the Uhuru thing, that it comes from the African People's Socialist Party, right? Mm-hmm. And then he's, uh, they have taken it and run with it in the uh, uh, Black Hammer organization. So the African People's Socialist Party was part of this umbrella group called the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. Okay. And this group is still around. If you look at mm-hmm. like the um, Channel 5 with Andrew Callahan has a video where they go to this March for Reparations, and that group is the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. Got it. Okay. If you're familiar with that. Yeah. Yeah. So we get this organization founded, and kind of from what my perusal of, because I've also, you can go to their website, Black Hammer has like a news site. Um, they are kind of building them. Huh? Oh yeah, yeah. They're they're kind of for have now. they for now. Yeah, they they Still kind up. of bill themselves as like an anti-colonial organization that is specifically like, um, like one of the things they do is they have like a a white people's auxiliary that like is for the purpose of people paying reparations. Um, they have you know they carried out a couple of actual direct actions during twenty twenty, including like handing out masks and whatnot. Um, but for the most part, they seem to exist primarily to drive attention to themselves and thus donations via social media fuckery. Yeah. And, and yeah, that, that, that's, I, I think if you've, if you've personally interacted with Black Hammer propaganda at all, it is probably because you've seen someone on the internet talking about how Anne Frank, uh, is a, a Karen or something like that. Let's um, get into it. Yeah. Let's talk about <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So, so I want to touch on something real quick that you mentioned. You know, in these comments from the people who found the organization left the organization, these were these are still true believers who believe in this cause of decolonialization of African internationalism and mm-hmm. who do want to build a better world and do good things. Um, you know, in talking with people who've survived the cult, it sounds like Kazo probably never was a true believer, but there were true believers around Kazo who believed in this cause. Um, and because of that, we're able to be abused, to be profoundly yeah. abused um, by Kodzo and the people working directly under Kodzo at Kodzo's behest. Um, so April 30th, 2020, uh, in a tweet, I believe, uh, Kodzo calls Anne Frank a Becky, follows it up by how she's a Karen, which, one, is a ridiculous statement. Two, yeah. is entirely meant to cause this kind of uproar around that, you know, um, back at this time, there was acceptance of the Black Hammer organization in leftist circles in that kind of online communist community. Um, and there were people who came out kind of like, oh, no, let's hear what they're saying about this, you know, talking about how victim, you know, the term genocide was invented to describe the Holocaust, but that term wasn't used to describe slavery, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, which, to be clear, is not the conversation that Kodzo was trying to have. That was not the No, and that is a worthwhile conversation to have. It's like, why, you know, like, why is that not, why is the, the enslavement and, like, mass murder of a huge number of African people not seen as an act of genocide? Certainly a valid conversation to have, but also should not at all intersect with Anne Frank or how we think about the Holocaust. Yeah, and uh, because we are living in hell, yeah, this fake, you know, kind of propped up, not a real discussion, it's meant to just piss people off, is back again. 
Oh, good. What a great Yay. time. Yep. Based on documents that have come out that are purported to be from internal Black Hammer documents, this was part of their Operation Storm of White Tears. Um, Jesus Christ. Which was seemingly this, and again, don't know for sure if these documents are from the, but these documents that are purported to be from Black Hammer um, lay out this strategy to cause division, to kind of bring other groups down to elevate Black Hammer's own status by putting themselves as the center of attention in all of this that is happening um, in this online fiasco. Um, because again, the ideology is not the point. The attention is the point. The control right. is the point. Along this way, there's, there's, you know, there are a lot of allegations out there. There are, you know, for example, allegations uh, that false, false allegations of pedophilia and sexual assault were used against people who left the group, people who spoke out against the group that they were recruiting people on Tinder. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. So along the way, some more chapters form. Um, there's one, I believe, near Aurora, Colorado, or at least in Colorado. There's a New York City one. And kind of the group continues to rise as uh, almost, you know, you know, your typical revolutionary communist cell that we have quite a few of in the United States going on right now. Yeah. Um, they structure, they purport to structure themselves around the tenets of democratic centralism as some of these other groups do, um, which to dumb things down a lot, and there's probably going to be leftists screaming at me right now, um, was this idea from Lenin where a group takes a vote. And then if that vote passes, they all agree to go along with that platform. Yeah. With usually about 50%. Um, so that there's not kind of the splitting off of factions. So it can lead to this very centralized and hierarchical control structure. That's certainly what happened in Black Hammer. Um, there are other democratic centralist groups that have been in the news lately who use a similar strategy. Um, but you know what this meant is it allowed God, it allowed Codzo to run this group with an iron fist. Um, you know, on paper, there were there was a group of people leading the group. Um, someone else was in control of the money, but in fact, it was Kazo controlling all of this. Um, they also had you know shared living spaces where members of different chapters of Black Hammer lived, hammer houses, um, and that's always going to end well. Yeah, don't. Generally, it's a good rule not to go live with the revolutionary cell you just joined. Yeah, if if you are joining a political party and they want everyone to live in the same space that is controlled by that political organization, you may in fact be joining a cult. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's there continues to be kind of trying to get more attention. At one point, you know, Codzo starts beef with a local anti-fascist crew in Colorado. You know, another thing to mention about this group is it's a lot of queer people in the group. You know, Ghazi identifies as non-binary. There are, you know, several, many members who love people of the same sex. And, 
you know, one of the things that happens as Ghazi is beefing with the local anti-fascist crew is something that people are probably thinking of when they hear the name Ghazi Kadzo is this bizarre video of Kadzo running around in Joker makeup. Oh, jeez. Talking about white anarchists and anti-fascists, uh, which the background is actually even more fucked up than you would think, having just heard that. Um, as outlined, Red Voice goes into this specifically. Um, there were members of the group who were, you know, practitioners of Yoruba, um, an African religion, um, and one of them was a trained. Um, I don't know the correct term, so I'm just going to say practitioner of this religion, um, had gone through an education process in that that took some time. Um, and this video of Gazi running around in Joker makeup was Gazi's idea to channel the deity Eshu, and my apologies on mispronouncing that, which is a Yoruba deity, you know. Um, and before this happened, apparently Gazi had brought this up to the person and the person said, that is extremely disrespectful of my religion. Don't do that. And Gazi did it anyway. Um, and this is, you know, another one of the things where this gets sent around all the time as, you know, treating Black Hammer as a lol cow. But, you know, even as this was going on, there was this abuse that was going on as well. And people being preyed upon by this group. In 2020, Black Hammer announces that they are planning to build Hammer City, which is supposed to be this utopian settlement in the Rockies. Um, you look like you have something you want to say. <laughs> well, I mean, look, it, it, we, it, there, it's a perfectly normal dream to want to build a utopian settlement in the Rockies. There's some downsides to that. One of them is that the Rockies is actually a terrible place for a large number of people to live. Um, and it, it, this is why repeatedly, I don't know, th there's been a lot of utopian settlements out in that part of the world, and they don't tend to last very long or they turn into normal towns but it's 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 always interesting when folks try when folks want to do a commune type situation and then they immediately go for a place like that because like the mountains is the hardest place to do it if you want to have a self-sufficient commune like fucking kansas you know uh arkansas like somewhere where the soil is good for growing stuff and you can get like a flat track tract of land that can grow food as opposed to high alpine elevations where very little is going to... Anyway, whatever. This is compound talk. Um. So, yeah. Um, there's, there's, if there's one thing you take away from uh, this episode, don't build your compound in the Rockies. Don't build a um, compound in the Rockies. Look. Okay. That's all I, that's all I got. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a message of this podcast. Unless you're the mm -hmm. Tenacious Unicorn Ranch, in which case, go right ahead. They're thriving. Well, but yeah. And and then you got to think, you know, what they're doing, which is raising alpaca as opposed to relying yeah. on, like, growing crops, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I don't actually see any advanced... I was just looking at their... Uh, at the Hammer City website. I, I, it, they just talk... They just say sustainable farming. I can't see advanced yeah. plans for... Uh, perhaps there weren't any. Uh, they did raise $112,000 so far. Uh, yeah. According to their website, they raised $112,000 so far. Yes. Aha. Okay. Yeah, educate Which, us more on this project. Yeah. Real interested to know how much money they actually raised. Um, maybe it was that much. The point is, we don't really know because there's no, there was no kind of open record keeping within this group. Um, and 
it was Kazo who was in control of the money. So the, the group found land to buy, and they actually began the process of a land deal. In early May 2021, they, and, and this is some information now coming from a fantastic Colorado Sun article about the whole Hammer City thing um, that I also recommend if someone wants to read more in depth about this. So as the land deal was in the process of going through, a portion of the group moved out there. So uh, about two dozen people, this was, this wasn't, you know, it was remote, but it wasn't on top of a mountain. This was in a subdivision that had parcels for sale. Yeah. Which leads to some problems. This, this is a subdivision with a homeowners association and strict limits on land use as well. Yeah. So they didn't have water rights for one thing. Yeah, exactly. They didn't have water rights to the land, um, which I have not started a compound, but I imagine water rights is something you want to have well, figured out. If you if you just want to live on a pl- plot of land in the middle of nowhere, it can be fine. Uh, right. If you want to grow crops, then yeah, having the ability to irrigate said crops is kind of important. Yeah. So another thing at this time uh, is... Black Hammer tends to be a pretty heavily armed group. You know, the group moved out to this land. They were camping out. They're basically squatting on the land that they did not own uh, and brought their, you know, armed security along with them. Um, and we're also like blocking road access for residents of the subdivision. Um, so they, they had neighbors, you know, and um, at one point this leads to an altercation with a neighbor. Um, with three armed Black Hammer members um, and a neighbor driving his car uh, who, you know, according to this Colorado Sun article, gets out with an unloaded shotgun and there's a standoff. This could have been one of those things that went really bad. It went about as good as you can hope a situation like that can go where um, nobody got killed. Um, But while this was happening, the member of Black Hammer who was responsible for the land deal forgot to sign or didn't sign the paperwork on time. Um, and after information comes out about the standoff, the land deal completely falls through. There is no Hammer City that is going to be built. Um, and Kodzo is maintaining, and Black Hammer as a whole, is maintaining a super active social media presence at this time as well. So, you know, one of the other things that gets brought out is like this video of them talking about, oh, we built this bridge on our land, uh, which is kind of a bunch of two by fours across a ditch. Yeah. Are, are they planning to buy it um, in, 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 as like an organization or as Cardzo planning to buy it themselves as an individual? Do we know? They, this is actually something I did some research on. Um, they did this fun thing. <laughs> Uh, they created a front group, a front organization to buy the land. Nice. Which they called Hammerstone Industries Incorporated. Huh. <laughs> yeah, stealthy. They, uh, one of the member, one of the prominent members was responsible for that. So nice. the power of Google. Yeah. I also found their uh, Bitcoin wallet while we were talking and it has never had any donations and remains empty. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, that, that one hasn't gone well. Uh, so... After this land deal falls through, Hammer City is not being built. 
a lot of people get really fucking pissed. They also, it sounds like they shot through the real estate sign on their way out of the subdivision. So on, on the 17th of May, 2021 is when the group leaves Hammer City. Um, so going back to what Robert mentioned earlier, um, the group took a very, I'll say, interesting approach when COVID-19 started, um, which is the belief that COVID-19 is real, that people should wear masks and be protected, but that they should not take the vaccine and that Fauci was a liar, which comes out a bit later. So, so they were doing, for example, there's a, there's a news article uh, with a video of them doing, you know, mutual aid distribution of masks and food in Colorado. So lots of people are real fucking pissed um, when Hammer City falls through. There's also been, you know, these allegations that have been coming up again and again. Um, and at this point, several chapters break apart from Black Hammer, um, break away from Kodzo and kind of go off and do their own thing. Um, and Kodzo is left with this core group of members, um, kind of true believers, and says, fuck it, we're moving to Atlanta. So the group does a marathon drive from Colorado to the southern suburbs of Atlanta. And outside of Atlanta is where Kodzik grew up on the east side, um, around the northeast. Um, and they, they keep going. They rent a house where everyone lives together. Um, another one of their hammer houses. I believe at this time there is another active chapter that is still connected with Kodzo in the Carolinas as well. Um, but, you know, this is a when prophecy fails moment for Kodzo. Um, and the people that are left behind are these true believers. Um, and Kodzo doesn't take this well, doesn't take the failure of this deal well, becomes even more paranoid than they already were, more controlling and more abusive than they already were. So there's the red voice gets into some of the um, really wild allegations that come out at this time. Allegedly, Kazo has members sign over um, control of the bank accounts to them at gunpoint, has people reveal personal information at gunpoint. And again, these are allegations. I'm not saying Kazo did this. Um, that we get some of these classic cult techniques coming out, um, forcing people to sit and listen to Kazo kind of preach, having people constantly working not getting enough to eat, um, having, you know, love bombing where got, where Kodzo makes, you know, deep eye contact with the person talks about how important they are, how much they love them and, uh, the consumption of psychedelics as well. Cool. That's good. Great. Yeah. Yeah. You love to hear that. Um, yeah, just a bunch of heavily armed people. Uh, being cops for each other and drugging each other in support of a, I don't know, charismatic seems like a weird word for Ghazi, but they he must, must be. be right. Like clearly, it works on some people. Yeah, yeah I think they, uh, I think they are charismatic, right? Like I don't it, think it's necessarily they are, to be yeah. good to be charismatic, but no, they seem to have attracted these followers. Some people seem to be responding to their, I don't know, the way they present themselves. It's so. I guess that's always the way with cults, right? That like to the outside, the cult leader is always an obvious cult leader, but 
everybody's got different things they're vulnerable to. And, and for some people that's, well, and I also, I, I think a lot of it is they have like presented themselves differently in different periods. And I'm, I think from what I've been reading, it sounds like a decent chunk of the folks who were kind of most deeply wrapped up in it have been with it for a while. So they've kind of followed along with Ghazi as they've, you know. Yeah. And this is a group that the hill. You know, preyed upon young people, preyed upon queer people, uh, preyed upon unhoused people, preyed upon people of color who are at the intersections, you know, of oppression in our society. Um, and this group, yeah. like most cults, it offered them a cause, a purpose, something to fight for, something to do, friends, a roof over their head even, you know? Um, yep. Which is a huge part of it, right? Because if you if this if this place is not just your social circle, but also your safety net and like how you keep a roof over your head and how you stay fed and you don't have close ties to family or maybe your family aren't people that you can trust. Like, I mean, again, it's not a different story than you get in a bunch of other cults, but like this is, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very frightening situation for those people to wind up in. And of course, one of the things that is unfortunate is that so much of the stuff that the Black Hammer organization said and did is so absurd that like it leads to this kind of mockery of anybody who gets wrapped up in it and the people who are very much victims of it, which I think is also one of the things that makes it harder to leave, right? Yeah. Is that siege mentality you know, for and, those um, inside. That's where the term cognitive dissonance comes from. Yeah. Specifically people, right. You know, when, when things don't go according to plan, stick with this group and, you know, have already given away so much of their time, so much of their life, so many of their connections that they just roll with it. Yep. Yeah. And then there's uh I'm just thinking back to a story I wrote years ago where I was fortunate enough to interview someone who's like an expert on these small cults. Um, and they had actually been a survivor of, a, like a, I think it was a Trotskyist cult. So they were very familiar. And they'd like, this group exhibits all those patterns, right? Like the charismatic leader that you mentioned, the use of their own language, the control of their relationships and their contacts inside and outside the group. Yeah. And then they mirror this like very positive it seemed like I was just looking at their aesthetics after you mentioned it. Like they're definitely sort of seeking to mirror that uh, like Black Panther Party aesthetic, right? Uh, which is obviously something that has, for good reasons, very positive associations for a lot of people. So I can see yep. they've constructed this very appealing package. That, yeah. And now there's a, a body, right? Now a person has died uh, yep. connected let's with get this organization. To this. So yeah, let's talk about this. So in Atlanta is where things get really wacky. Yeah basically as is often the case with atlanta as is often the case with this beautiful beautiful city owned by coca-cola and home depot mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with with i have to admit it as a texan the best barbecue in the south <laughs> that's true excellent uh mm -hmm. ethiopian food as well i was there this weekend yeah yeah oh, fucking amazing <laughs> fucking amazing ethiopian ethiopian food um oh, yeah yeah big refugee population that's besides the point yeah, yeah. um yep so you know Cause I was found themselves in the city without a ton of money. Um, and so needs to get more attention, needs to appeal to more people. So this is when Kazo announces that Black Hammer is forming a coalition with the Proud Boys, which is one of those things that comes out in really sensationalized headlines, but doesn't actually happen. What happens is Kazo goes on a podcast with Gavin McInnes and they talk yeah. about, we have so much in common. And there's, you know, a little toast evidence of yeah. actual organizing or work 
together between the two groups. But with this group like this, no, especially because uh, Gavin doesn't. Yeah, Gavin's do not organizing anymore. On paper, but, not involved yeah, in problems yeah. anymore. Yeah. What was the podcast they went on instead of interest? Dan'll cut that and add in the entire audio from B movie condensed into a two second blast, like we talked about. You know, the group gets more attention to that. Uh-huh. Um, they start talking about how great Trump is, how much they love Trump, how Fauci is evil. Um, because again, ideology is not the point. The attention is, and this is how you continue to get attention by acting ridiculous, um, by yeah. asking Trump voters to donate money to you. Um, and at this time, they also begin an extremely aggressive fundraising campaign in the city of Atlanta. So there's a park in downtown Atlanta called Woodruff Park that has a huge unhoused population because our city is bad at being a city and it's just bad. But Black Hammer, there, there are other groups, there are other leftist groups that do mutual aid that help people out in the park. And Black Hammer says, we're going to do this too. You know, so they'll go there and have these sessions where they're screaming into a megaphone about whatever um and you know handing out clothes and some food to unhoused people um and they also start sending their the members of their group pretty much every day of the week to go out into the city of atlanta and ask people for money on the streets uh in their matching branded black hammer t-shirts and masks a sight to see and um yeah, so they, this is what they call their Robin Hood campaign. Um, they specifically target college campuses, uh, Georgia State University and Georgia Tech especially, um, with the idea that college kids have a lot of money to give away. Not a great idea. Um, but they do this aggressive yeah, fundraising where they sense. you know, follow people, and if they don't take no for answers. Say, oh, you don't care about homeless people. You don't care about unhoused people. Um, you know, you just have so much white privilege and really attacking people. Um, which is great when you're coming home, you're riding your bike home, and then you keep passing Black Hammer members <laughs> outside of, uh, you know, on your commute home. Not fun. Yeah, and, and they appear, you know, on the Beltline, which is this kind of public green space and, and shared walking space in Atlanta. Um, they do this outside of concert venues. You know, I went to see the Dead Kennedys, and as I was walking in the venue, a Black Hammer guy asked me for money. I have to explain to the guy in front of me, handing them $5, this is an anti-Semitic cult. You don't want to do that. And they, they're also taking in unhoused people um you know there's this video of of uh one of the lieutenants saying you know we want to get you the unhoused people to come fundraise for us you know you come fundraise for us you can keep half of it 50 50 split and whoever fundraises the most in this week gets to come live with us at the hammer house so it's pretty fucked up you know um there's a case where a professor at Georgia State University, because these people, the, the Black Hammer members are out there every day, all day. Um, th- this is what they do. This is their job. This is how the group makes money. You know, 
calls them out and says, hey, stop asking for money here. I know you're a cult. And a member follows the professor and films her, you know, and specifically films her license plate and says, we got you, for example. Members are arrested for having a megaphone in Woodruff Park and um, get some of their guns taken away when they're arrested because they're in the park with a bunch of guns. Um, cool. You can just have guns out. Yeah, yeah, it's Georgia. Which sometimes is cool when the Proud Boys show up and anti-fascists have guns, but it's not not great when uh, Black Hammer is doing that. Definitely tracking, following people who criticize you and p- taking pictures of their license plate to try to dox them online is not at all cult behavior. It's, yeah, and they, it's like they, low they rent Scientology and attack stuff. ex-members. They yeah. um, leak the addresses of the family of ex-members and their social security numbers as well awesome. because they had them give them all this information at gunpoint. Yeah. They seem to get very close to encouraging people to shoot cops in a couple of uh, yep. pieces on their website as well. Um, yep. They talk about killing white people a lot. Eventually, in... Yeah, in twenty early 2022, they have this rally outside of the CNN Center in solidarity with the January 6th political prisoners. Um, <laughs> along the way in 2022, Ghazi claims to find have found Jesus, and uh, Black Hammer becomes a religious group. You know, the, they, they turn their mutual aid distribution into what they're calling the Revolutionary Church, which, of course... Is filmed and live streamed. They uh, have several live streams that they do regularly throughout the week that are mandatory for members to attend. Um, you know, there there is corporal punishment going on within the group of the people living at the house. Um, and and the people that they're picking up off the street, it's not just adults; it's kids as well. Um, Kazo claims to have this sixteen-year-old that they have adopted. Um, and, you know, cause of post these videos of them giving the 16 year old guns and money and clothes to wear. Um, the kid gets taken into state custody um, before the current thing that we're talking about. Um, and this is going to be important later on in the story. Um, yeah. So there, there are also these, stories from members who have escaped who have to do these elaborate escape attempts to get out because they're not allowed to leave who have to kind of run away in the middle of the night with none of their stuff through a thunderstorm to get out so this is what we're dealing with all right everyone it's james here and i just wanted to correct a couple of things from the episode or add to them Uh, one of them was the date of that shooting be it murder or death by suicide Uh, that was the 19th of july not the 19th of February. Um, so it happened about a week ago at the time that you will hear this if you hear this on the day that we put it out. Uh, secondly, I also just wanted to give some context to the word Uhuru. It's a Swahili word, it means freedom or independence. Uh, and it was used as part of a, a backronym, which is uh, when, when a group has a name of them, they create an acronym that fits to that name. Uh, and the word Uhuru was part of a backronym for a group called the Mao Mao a revolutionary anti-colonial group who existed in Kenya. Uh, and the word Uhuru was used a decent amount in anti-colonial struggles in Kenya. Uh, and in the backronym, the backronym is uh, Muzungo Yende Ulaya Mwafrika Party Uhuru. 
let the foreigner go home. Uh, Africa should be independent, will be independent, I suppose. Um, and I just wanted to give that context, and obviously it's been appropriated now uh, by, by the Proud Boys, but that is part of the etymology of the word. And then we get to um, what happened on February 19th, 2022. Um, you know, this is an ongoing story. So the facts, what we know might be changing, but uh, early in the morning, someone calls 911 and talks about being held hostage by an organization by a group. They don't give the address, but the police are, the authorities are able to track the number to this house in Fayetteville suburb south of Atlanta um, and show up and um, they see someone is outside walking a dog who, who runs away. That person gets arrested. Um, that's a member of Black Hammer. They see someone kind of waving from the garage, seemingly in distress. Um, and the police are able to get that person out. They ask that the rest of the people in the house come out as well. Um, about 10 people come out and uh, one person remains inside. Now, by about 2 p.m., um, with the use of an explosives ordinance, e with the use of an EOD, yeah. uh, a, a bomb robot, um, the police enter the building. Um, the SWAT team goes in and they find one person dead of a gunshot wound to the head, which we, at this current time, we don't know the full details on that. We might not ever. Hopefully something comes out. Kodzo is being held. You know, the group is kind of like sitting around outside, not in handcuffs, but being held by the group. Um, and uh, Kodzo does what Kodzo does and starts to live stream. So uh, here's a clip from this 30-minute live stream, Facebook Live, that Kodzo does. Look, there's a lot of media out here, girls, so this is just going to build me up at the end of the day. <laughs> so thank you. But, uh, so if you think that you know, I am concerned or anything like that, you're out of your mind. <laughs> at the end of the day, there's still breath in my body. I still run an amazing revolutionary party. Our community is effing with us. And now all these news channels are going to want to interview us. And we are going to get to communicate about all the great work that we are doing here. So this is great at the end of the day. So my chickens coming home to roost is more, <laughs> more media, more followers, more you know, advancement of work, more movement, more greatness. And so be it, sweetheart. Things like this have not stopped. Movements are leaders before, so. Not even overcome. This is a great moment. Right, comrade? This is a great moment. A moment where, you know, our voices will be amplified and our mission and cause will be informed. Well, that's cool. I like that he clearly understands the gravity of the loss of a human life. So that's, that's I will good. say this is probably before, depending on what oh, actually they, happened. It, it became clear that dead. someone was dead. Okay. Um, but the point is that 
this is exactly what Kaza wanted was this attention. Right. Yeah, they seem pumped. <laughs> they seem pumped and also like deranged. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that wasn't how I'd envisioned them speaking at all. It's, it's sort of very almost like calming. They seem very, very calm in their tone of voice. Yeah. I mean, calm, but like, I don't know. I see an edge to them, but maybe that's yes. just me reading. Yeah. Um. So do we know more detail about like what happened with that person who died? So I don't want to mention the name of the person. Um, this right. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, this is a minor too, right? This is so. 18. The person who was killed, who's dead now, was not. Yeah. Was not the 16 year old. The 16 year old was already in state custody. Oh, okay, good. A few weeks good, ago, good, I believe. Good. Wow. Um, this is an eight, according to the, what the group has said and other survivors that I've spoken with, this is an 18 year old who the group Jesus. took in off of the street. Um, this is a kid, you know, who wanted to be a rapper who had dreams. Um, yeah. who, you know, according to black cameras, own media, they made this person, their minister of defense. That's a good job for an 18 year old. Who's dead now. Um, because of this group, yeah, potentially from a self-inflicted gunshot wound, which that is the case came about because of Kazo putting that 18 year old in this situation. Yeah. So dirty South right watch broke the news. They have a really good thread that I also recommend about they do have a good thread. this happening. It seems like the local news, they started covering the story uh, in the AM when it was happening, but didn't quite make the connection. Yeah, there's, there's one article that's out there from a local news site that just interviews Gazi Kodzo, homeowner of the house. <laughs> um, oh, no. Yeah. So that happens. One of the members of the group is immediately charged and booked. Uh, it's, it's a really fucked up situation. You know, there, yeah. there's like an unhoused individual who, that, who, who other good activists were in touch with who are at the house when this happened because this person had no other choice, but it was live outside or go with Black Hammer. Oh, who God. Went through all of this happening. Um, and then it was still unhoused, was still unhoused after all this happened. Kodzo was arrested and booked. Um, the charges didn't come out until about an hour before we started recording. The charges are two counts of participation in street gang activity, two accounts of aggravated assault, two accounts of kidnapping, two accounts of false imprisonment, two accounts of conspiracy to commit a crime, and I'm going to talk about this one, one account of sodomy, which in Georgia, the sodomy law refers to non-consensual oral or anal sex or oral and anal sex performed with a minor. Got you. So one way or the other, they are being accused of sexual assault. Yes. Yeah. The other person arrested um, was charged with the same crimes, except not sodomy, uh, officer obstruction instead, presumably because they fled. And that's where we're at. That's where we're at right now. Cool. Well. That's rough. Yeah, it's it's a pretty bleak story. But. I don't know. At this point, we will probably be hearing more as this case blows up. Yeah. And there's always the chance that, you know, the right's going to wind up adopting it to try to, you know, make it into a, a, a left wing bad kind of deal. So one they already yeah, have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll see what kind of legs it gets. 
But it's important to understand both what's happening here because a person is dead and a lot of people have been hurt and also kind of broadly the trends that are at play here, the way like cult dynamics can intersect with yeah, radical politics, surprising. I think is important for people to be aware of because this kind of thing isn't going to get less common as shit continues to unravel. Yeah. And um, if there's some takeaways, if someone can leave this with, you know, a few points that the people who were in this group were, they were victims in the situation. They were preyed upon by this abusive person yeah. because they were in a vulnerable state. Um, anyone, this could happen to anyone who falls on hard times, who has a bad enough day, and then someone comes in and offers them this, that they say yes. You know, um, the, the other thing is to know about groups that are out there before you get involved. Do your research, listen to voices that might be critical of the group um, and know what you're getting yourself into. There are other ostensibly leftist groups out there who, while not as abusive as Black Hammer, um, have cases of abuse coming out of them that gets covered up. Yeah, it might be good for us just to um, just to suggest that if folks you know find themselves in a difficult situation or someone they know is in is in one of these situations, like maybe we can uh, uh, link to some resources in the notes or something. Yeah, the, um, uh, the problem is there aren't. Yeah, go ahead. A ton. Yeah, there's not. There's not a um, whole lot of good resources recommended to me that I've been trying to find. It's probably uh, Stephen Hassan's book, which um, Hassan is also he's yeah. an expert in the field, but he's also the guy who talked about how tranny hypno mind control porn was. Yeah, yeah. he's got he's problematic. Yeah. Look, I mean, part of the reason that this is such a problem is that there's very little in terms of good resources or good writing. One of the re things that is like there's good writing yeah. analyzing cults. Very little of it will give you much that's useful in terms of how to get people out of cults for a couple of reasons, including the fact that, as we talked about earlier, what makes people vulnerable? People aren't vulnerable to cults broadly, usually. I know there's there's a certain subset of people, but like as a general rule, people who get trapped in a cult get trapped in a specific cult because it is something that they are specifically vulnerable to. And so if you don't, like, it, it's more or less a matter of, like, if you want to get someone out of a cult, um, are you close with that person? Like, are they someone that you know? Are they someone that you have a, a, a deep relationship with? Because if so, like, that relationship and the care that you have for them is primarily the thing that is most likely to eventually help them get out, which doesn't mean it's a magic bullet, but, like, there's no reliable way to get people out of cults. Yeah, I'm a, you know, I do, I do 12 step recovery yeah. stuff um, for different reasons, but the closest analogy that I can think of is dealing with someone who's abusing drugs and alcohol in your life. You can't force anyone to stop. You can't make anyone yeah. leave. When people talk about cult deprogramming, what that entails no. is kidnapping someone and then putting them through more abuse. So there isn't a magic bullet. Yeah, a lot of extremely problematic shit gets offered to people who understandably are concerned for their friends yeah. or family members and, and just want to help. The best time to get someone out of a cult is before they join, you know, yeah. is to raise awareness about abuse in communities um, and share that yeah. information and take these things seriously. I truly believe so much of how this was able to happen is because people 
were just laughing at them and didn't take it seriously that this could get someone killed, that this was ruining lives. That's still happening. People are treating this as a joke. Not. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things, if you're like, I don't know, a parent or or somebody who otherwise works with or interfaces with or is raising young people and you're trying to think about how you can make them less vulnerable to this, it is a mix of educating them about cults and not in a way that's like, laughing or mocking or talking about how silly it is, but actually discussing the very real reasons why people fall in for this stuff, because that's, that's the important, one of the most important things It's the same as COVID really. One of the most important things for protecting yourself is not thinking yep. that you're immune, which is a natural thing. Most people who have fallen into cults earlier in their life when they heard about cults said, well, that's stupid as hell. I would never get trapped in something like that. And then they did. And that's a basically 100% of cult membership, you know, um, because, uh, yeah. If there's, if I can recommend some resources for parents. Of course. Shannon Foley Martinez, uh, who is on Twitter, is, you know, was involved in extreme right skinhead stuff and left it and has committed her life to helping people leave extremist movements. The same things, you know, that are going to make someone easily preyed upon by a cult and by an extremist group. Those are the same things. Um, and Shannon has some good resources out there. She has a Patreon as well. The resources are available for free. You don't need to join on her Patreon. Awesome. Yeah, Shannon is awesome. Um, and other than that, you know, don't yeah. try to avoid falling for a cult, um, except for, you know, this podcast. Yeah. Keep listening to this podcast. Make it the center of your life. Have no friends other than us. Form parasocial relationships with us. Uh huh. Well, we're the only we're the only people you can trust. I think that's clear. <laughs> yeah. Would you like to plug anything before we uh, cut you off here, Thomas? Yeah, uh, I'm at Twitter at w underscore f underscore Thomas. Don't be weird on Twitter. Um, have empathy for the people around you. Uh, I'm also going to plug Ash to unhoused people because they know what best can help them. Yeah. Fucking provide people with options for housing so that they're not. Yeah. Left like that. Having a cult be the best thing they can do. But yeah. Yep. On that happy note. Thanks for having me. Yeah. 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 yeah check in on your friends. Just abandon people when they're in difficult times. Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit tomboyx.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It is a wise man who marries a wiser woman. 
But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh... It wow. could happen. <laughs> it could happen here. Um, that was my Robert thing. Evans impression. Um, nice job, Andrew. Thank you very much. <laughs> Hopefully that wasn't an assault on your um, eardrums, but here we are. Here we are. I am Andrew. And this is It Could Happen Here. And this is the podcast where we talk about stuff that happen in places and I'll be guest hosting this episode. This is the Andrewism segment where I talk about whatever comes to mind. Crushed it. So I'd like to open up this episode with a question. Honestly, genuinely, how are you all doing? Well, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. Um, you know, not not the best time um, inside this country or really around the world. Um, so yeah, not, I would say not ideal. Not ideal. Yeah, I'm, I, I, everything bad is happening and also being compounded that I have been, I have been once again awoken at a, 
a genuinely egregiously early hour by someone pounding a hammer about eight inches from my head, which is fun and good and cool. Sounds yeah. with, with, without context. <laughs> with, without context, that'll be a, a wild thing to say. <laughs> we're, I, we're, I am giving no context about this. No, yeah, the fact this is literally true. <laughs> so yeah, basically, it's like that, but for everything. Yeah, I respect that. Not ideal is the perfect explanation. Yeah, yeah, not ideal, not ideal. Personally, I feel like I'm, you know, constantly being pulled in a bunch of different directions, and it's exhausting. And I mean, just to say up front, I do have the privilege of having more control over my workday than a lot of other people do. And that's not something I take lightly. I'm very appreciative of that. Um, shout out to my Patreon supporters. But, you know, between all my online responsibilities and my offline responsibilities and obligations and demands on my time, it really is not easy. And that's not even getting into, like, the social and political state of the world right now, to quote Jaden Smith, you know? That's, that's something I think we can all relate to on some level. Yeah. I mean, some weeks are much harder than others, but the through line has been stress. And that is the subject of today's episode. That's so stressful that we're going to talk about stress. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. A discussion about stress. It really could happen here. Um, <laughs> stress is not something that's new to me or really to most people. Me personally, my personality is very much lending itself to that um, sort of outcome because I'm constantly like spinning a bunch of plates at the same time. And every time like I drop one or I put one down, I pick up the next one. And I'm not very good at relaxing, usually. I've basically been going nonstop for a long, long time. And um, I'm not alone because 43% of adults suffer from chronic stress and 75 to 90% of doctor's visits are stress-related. And it's trash. You know, you feel it in your skin, in your muscle, in your bones. I remember this one time when I was working at that same winery I was talking about in a recent episode I was in. Um, and I was just sharing my experience, it really felt like my blood was running to water. Like, I was barely eating, I wasn't getting enough water, I wasn't being perfectly hydrated, and I was just going. We call that, we call that a reverse Jesus, when you're, when you're... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think when Jesus was stabbed, he did, like, bleed water for some reason. Sure did. Yeah. Tree rings, you know, they tell a story. And I think our bodies tell a story as well. And for a lot of us, that story is stress. Whether because of events or thoughts or circumstances that lead to frustration or anger or nervousness, we deal with stress. What would you guys say is some of your, like, main stress triggers? <sighs> I was going to say family. <laughs> Most of it's probably work related yeah. based on the type of uh things I surround myself with for over 12 hours a day. Yeah, I think for me it's it's work and then it's a lot of just sort of like personal life stuff I have to do stuff which is mm-hmm. 
just like like I'm trying to move right now and that's like incredibly stressful and yeah. And also right. oh, medical stuff. That's been a medical that's been stuff a for sure. Holy hell. Yeah. We are excited been... that Chris is finally moving out of the hammer factory. Into the into the into the electric drill factory, so the audio will still be a bit weird. I mean, look but, if, if 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 it's if it's anything like college, it'll be uh, twelve hours a day of a guy with a jackhammer directly below my window, which you'll all get to hear an incredibly large amount of. And it's going to be great. Yeah, that's that fantastic. Is, that is. I the mean, goal. I think that's a perfect encapsulation of exactly the topic we're talking about. It's like a jackhammer on your brain, constantly. <laughs> I mean, that's not the only form of stress. I mean, there's a stress that comes from, like, loss, uh, stress that comes from, like, social drift, stress that comes from, like, this consumerist rat race, um, you know, mental illness, just general uncertainty and change and grief and guilt and trauma. Um, you know, the nine-to-five dictatorship that a lot of people are subject to. And, of course, climate change. Good old climate change. I think more and more people need to realize though is that stress is a, a symptom of like systemic violence. You know, when we are dealing with these headaches and sleep problems and muscle pains and digestive problems and sex problems and blood pressure issues and moodiness and restlessness and demotivation and irritability and substance abuse and all these other um, responses and consequences. It's just the outcome of daily systemic violence, of the way that this system deprives us of support and care, that it, how, how it atomizes us, how it controls us and really squeezes us forward. With. I mean, this is not to say that, like, there's no stress outside of capitalism or that stress is a capitalist invention. Absolutely not. I mean, stress in um, small doses could be a good indicator uh, in certain spiral situations that you need to change a situation, um, motivation to act, you know. But, and the capitalism is, is really pathological. And yet, you got to keep playing normal. You have to keep on pretending that everything is okay. I mean, we all know how deeply unhealthy this society is, how deeply unequal the society is, how many people are dealing with stress-related illnesses, how many people are dealing with, like, hypervigilance. How we are constantly scanning this urban jungle for threats for, uh, of, of insecurity and, and decimation of public life and of entire economies and sectors. And it's like we're held in captivity. I will say one thing, and that is that while capitalism produces a lot of stress, it also alleviates stress by producing an economy organized around the production and circulation of addictive substances and practices of the, all these different vices that you know, people pick up. I mean, if you look at the roots of capitalism and how capitalism really funded itself initially through the plantation economies and the Caribbean and the rest of the Americas, um, you know, growing like sugar and tobacco and, you know, producing all these spirits and chocolate and coffee 
the thing that 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 brought, helped bring capitalism to fruition and helped fund industrial capitalism is the thing that people are using to self-medicate in response to the effects of the now global capitalist dominance. And people love off their chocolate and their coffee. Personally, I'm not a big fan of coffee. I think it tastes disgusting. But yeah, you me know, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tried it once and it was like it tastes like the sensation of burning. <laughs> you know, I just wasn't having it. I like the smell for some reason, like the smell of coffee beans, but the actual taste is like nah. And surprisingly, I actually used to not like chocolate as a child. It's only when I matured my taste buds that I actually came around <laughs> to it. Um, ironically. And of course, we don't think of these things as, you know, vices or, or medications, but they're like small pleasures that, you know, help us get through our day. Practically everybody is some level of alcoholic these days. And of course, there's social media, which is like algorithmically tailored and tuned to keep us on it, to keep us like, it, yeah. it basically like, like a puppet master controls the highs and lows of all emotions on a daily basis. It basically functions as an addictive drug. It just the drug is just is, is caused by chemical reactions in your own brain, but it's manipulating your brain into causing that to happen. Um, but it's it's a very similar addictive process that has like you know a reward system. You know this that's why like around a decade ago, a lot of social media companies changed their um, loading style to be like you like scroll it down and it flicks back up. Which was specifically like a slot machine. It was yeah. specifically copying a slot machine because it is it's it's like an addictive pattern that's ingrained into what we find pleasurable. So it's it's all like none of this is this probably isn't new information to a lot of people, but like it's all obviously very intentional the way it's designed to be extremely addictive. Yeah, and this, exactly. is, this is just like this is just like what like most of gaming is now too, where it's like I mean, okay, like you're playing a video game, right? Loot it was boxes. Never not casual. Yeah, but like yeah, it now it now literally like the, the the revenue model of the gaming industry is selling gambling to children. Ah, uh, you know and- that that is my one complaint about casinos is that eight year olds couldn't spend thousands of dollars of their parents' money on skins. Uh, you know, I, but I wanted now to- <laughs> thanks thanks to the wonders of gaming. Eight-year-olds, too, can basically just live in a casino in their own bedroom all the time. Ah, <laughs> modern society. Okay, there, there's, there's, there's conflicting accounts about this, but uh, there's, there's a new, like, free-to-play Diablo, Diablo game, and... Oh, yes, I heard about that. The, the, the amount of money it would take to get, like, a max-level character in this game, I have seen... Okay, I, 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 I've... I've the the latest calculation I've seen is saying it would take over five hundred thousand dollars. the The lowest range calculation of how much it would cost I've seen was about fifty thousand. It's probably at least a hundred thousand dollars to literally get the highest level character in Ridiculous. these games. It is like, like this is yeah, five hundred thousand. This problem is exactly like, where why. Just, this problem is exactly why um, the only mobile games I play are Sudoku and Minesweeper. <laughs> <laughs> And even those have ads. Yeah. I did have a brief foray into Among Us, though, but that um that period has has ended. <laughs> and plus, this is also why I tend to, you know, sail the high seas, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs>
the funny thing is that we don't have to do this. And I mean, it's kind of obvious. It's kind of like, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Like, it doesn't need to be said, but it also kind of needs to be said. That we built, we built this society and as people within it, we do have the power to change it. We don't have to work as much as we do. We don't have to, you know, structure and attend school the way that we do. I mean, even under capitalism, there there are people who are starting to shift from that eight-hour workday, which we had to fight for, a lot of people died for, um, to, you know, three to six hours a day, which, or four hours per day. It, it depends. Um, I think that, so one, one experiment was like, six hour days, four days a week or something like that. But despite, you know, studies coming out and saying that humans can only be so productive in a certain period of time, um, uninterrupted, it it doesn't matter. You know, despite the fact that, you know, productivity decreases, it's not like productivity rises with the amount of hours you work. It doesn't matter. I mean, I remember when I was working in a... um, an insurance company. I was a paper pusher, just like scanning documents and uploading documents and then scanning some more documents and then uploading those documents. And then every once in a while, I got to print documents. Exciting. Um, but I was dealing with like a backlog of documents. And I was typically able to get like a decent chunk of the work done within like the first two to three hours, as in like having it fully sorted, scanned, uploaded, completed, you know, but unfortunately I had to be there for eight hours. And so I had to drag out my day, you know, typically by listening to like the communist manifesto in audiobook <laughs> you know, or, or, or the conquest of bread on audiobook. But I had to find things to do to like make myself look busy um, or to like divvy up my tasks and extend them and artificially stretch them out. Because instead of doing this BS job, instead of not doing this BS job at all, or instead of doing this BS job based on tasks completed rather than time spent, I had to rely on the time spent and the contractual hours. And of course the pay was terrible, but I mean, that's expected at this point. But the whole point is really to like squeeze all our time and energy so that we're stressed out, so that we don't have any leisure, so that you know we, we look for convenience and convenience is profitable. I mean, who really has the energy to fight for their rights when they don't even have the energy to cook a meal when they get home? You know, and it, it wasn't always like this. The social bond was broken by capitalism and replaced with the bond to money. And until we like sever that bond, nothing's going to change. So the question is, how can we address stress, right? And so capitalism has an answer. Um, and then there's like an actual, proper, real systemic answer. I mean, personally, I deal with stress by just not thinking about it. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, what, what, what do you guys do?
be really sad. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm talking about like like mitigation strategies, you know, like I don't know. Uh, like when it's nice out, like I go take walks. Um, walks are nice. Yeah, I have a I have a shark that I got from somewhere. That's like it's like the foam, like the, the squishy foam material, but it's a shark. And it rules. Do you have an <laughs> IKEA shark, Chris? No, 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 no. It's, it's one of okay. these. Little, it's one of All these. Right. Like, it's, it's, it's like it's like a stress ball, but, it, we were but it's about a shark. To, <laughs> we're about to just Hold like. On, where oh. is it? Yeah, that's very funny. No, I, I don't have a whatever the I don't know what the Blanja, Blanja, I don't know that language. Bla- is, I don't know how to say it either. Incomprehensible. Um, I don't know. I I've been trying to get back into doing more parkour training when I'm stressed, but honestly, it's a lot of the time I just do stuff that I know I'm capable of, which oftentimes is the same things that kind of cause me to get stressed <laughs> in the first place. Looking at nonsense propaganda writing about it um writing about like different like philosophies around doomerism and like because those are things i just i my my brain can just do with little effort so it's almost it's almost peaceful in a way almost therapeutic yeah it's 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 bizarre because in some ways you would think that these things are what's causing me to have problems but also in a lot of ways it kind of calms me down um to look at a whole bunch of this type of thing or to write about it or to like try to like, you know, just do like formatting inside like a Google doc about it. Um, I don't know. It's like, it's like sorting out the stuff. It's almost like there's this idea. This is like a um, thing called a knowing. It's when you get a whole bunch of stuff out on the floor and you sort it into piles. Uh, it, it's done with like Lego a lot. If you dump a giant like box of Lego, with all these different Lego pieces, um, if you're going to null them, you're going to take all the pieces that are like the same color or size and sort them into their little places. I, it's, 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 so it's, I kind of do that, but with like ideas, um, and mm. like, with, and like with writing projects, I, I dump out all the things I'm currently thinking about into like a spreadsheet or a Google doc and sort them into related topics and be like, okay, here's how this thing leads into this thing. And I just, I, I it's like that kind of like organizational thing. Um, right. so like, like how organizing is kind of like a therapeutic thing. So it's like, I can do that with all of the random stuff floating around in my brain, sometimes I'll, I'll try to like just sort it out. Even if it doesn't get turned into like a work project, it's still like, it's a, like an external way to sort out my thoughts. Right. Sophie? I have a dog. <laughs> Very good dog. I have a dog. We listen to music. We go outside. We like to go to the park and listen to music outside. You know, that's the basic. I work a lot, but work is also like if I don't work, I'm more stressed. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I yeah. definitely I relate. Well. To, I, I relate to that, which is. Which makes me sound like a lapdog for capitalism. I know, right? <laughs> like, it's not something I'm like proud of, but also like, you know, I'm lucky enough. I think, to not... I think that's indicative of the problem, right? Like, it's not that people don't necessarily like to work, don't necessarily like to labor. Yes, it was like not having autonomy yeah. over it, you know? Because, I mean, if I. Imposed. Most of the things I do for work now are things that I've been doing for years unpaid because I was just interested in them. So, you know, if we're talking about theorizing about like a post work world, yeah, people are still going to do all kinds of shit. Obviously, there's questions around, you know, tasks which are 
non like not the most fun to do as we've had discussions on like anti-work stuff before but for a lot of stuff everyone has little interests and little skills that they find kind of slightly therapeutic and also like you know it's in terms of tasks that no one wants to do like i fixed my own plumbing in my bathtub a few weeks ago because my landlord's not going to do that so like you know people it, when, when when you have to do something you kind of become capable of it that's fair i think one of the most popular responses like the stress is capitalism imposes is like this concept of self-care, you know, this way of escaping from the grind of it all and sure. dealing with, you know, with issues by like getting to bed early and eating well and physical exercise, which I've been doing a lot of lately, um, you know, yeah. buff Andrew Rock and all that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have to change your little drawing into like, into like the Chad version. <laughs> Well, I actually did that recently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, it's lovely. Um, you know, there's thing, also things like like journaling and meditation yeah. and yeah. yoga and all that jazz. I mean, um, even, never, even, never really got into meditation because I, I tried it a couple of times and every yeah. time I do, I kind of fall asleep. <laughs> I, I definitely do some meditation stuff. Um but that's just kind of slightly part of my like me- metaphysics interest. Um, and I mean, also mean like in terms of like self care practices in that vein that can help you kind of relax. There's obviously stuff like, you know, mushrooms or MDMA, which if done in, you know, proper, you know, it's sp- spaced out, not, not doing them all the time, but doing them at, at certain intervals um, can definitely be, be therapeutic um, in their own way. Audrey Lord, one of the, foremost black feminist scholars of our time one said and I, I return to this quote a lot um, caring for myself is not an act of self-indulgence it is self-preservation and that is an act of political warfare self-care used to mean preserving yourself in a world hostile to your very identity community way of life it meant not waking yourself to an early grave you know practicing saying no and being mindful of your sensitivities and triggers. And then, you know, as white corporate feminism does, white corporate feminism appropriated it and turned it into a industry now worth a staggering $11 billion. Yeah. I mean, now self-care, when people think of self-care, it's all about indulgent cosmetics and luxurious spa days and overpriced candles and going on expensive like, holidays. And- subscriptions to social media apps that are about, like, and I, it's, it, it's turned into this own, like, grifting industry almost, like the, the, the self-care industry. There's, like, self-care influencers and self-care yeah. content creators. And, like, it's just like, ah, it, it, it just gets... It gets the same icky derealization feeling that everything else under capitalism is slowly getting. Yeah, I mean, they even have like their own self-care fonts. Like if you notice, a lot of self-care content has a very specific visual style. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, hashtag self-care on Instagram is just like a bottomless scroll of graphics and product yeah. placements. And it just makes me feel records. kind of unsettled. It kind of has this like uncanny aspect to it. Yeah, because it's almost as if self-care is inaccessible to those who is created to help the most. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, there's, there's that, I mean, the, the fundamental part of the uncanny is that, is that disconnect <laughs> where the, the gap between the phenomenon and the thing is really, is really big. And you can't really understand why it's uncanny, but if you 
think about it, it's because that gap between the thing and what it's supposed to be doing is so large. So yeah, this thing that's supposed to help all these people is now a white millennial, like, like up, like middle upper class, like aesthetic now. Um, and that sucks. <laughs> exactly. I mean, these days the people like, it's mostly a salve for like white collar workers whose jobs also yep. suck them of their time, energy and creativity. But the people who are actually, you know, the blue collar workers, they often don't have the time or money to be able to invest in themselves in that way. Self-care and workaholism are basically two sides of the same coin, right? It's preserve yourself so you can produce more. It's a solution to capitalism within capitalism. The solution doesn't actually alleviate the conditions of stress, but lines, pockets, and fuels the economic system that creates it in the first place. I mean, if you're selling self-care, it helps that you've got a constant supply of customers living in perpetual anxiety and wellness. Rather than a means of resistance to the system, it's been weaponized by the system. It's become this performative thing where you put on this image of put-togetherness where you carefully curate your feed and your Instagram stories and your highlights, and it is an individualized solution to systemic issues. It's, it's like the system telling you to calm down while it continues to denigrate and, and exploit you. None of these things address stress systematically. I'm not saying that it's necessarily bad to address stress individually because everybody has their own personal conditions. But without dealing with the broader material conditions, without addressing people's lack of free time, lack of access to social connection, lack of access to housing and healthy food and affordable medical care, you know, it, it misses the point. And I haven't, I haven't read much um, in the field of, I believe there are some anarchists who spend a lot of time writing and talking about it. But I haven't read much in the field of like psychotherapy and that sort of thing. But it's, it's kind of a realization of me that therapy is basically focusing on fixing an individual to adjust to a sick society rather yeah. than healing the society itself, fixing the society itself. I mean, so much when, about ther therapy is about, you know, addressing things that are f impairing your functionality to complete your, your work. Yeah, like it's, exactly. it's all the, the, the base of mental healthness is, is it inhibiting you from doing your job? And that's when it becomes a problem. And the only way to solve it is through, is like, like what what deems a success is if you're able to complete your job at a high level of functioning again. So it's not actually about your mental state. It's about how much you can produce under the capitalist framework. Yeah. And I mean, not to say that, that medication doesn't have a tremendous benefit in people's lives and, you know, helping them get back on track and take control of their circumstances. But, you know, when you have a society that's, has distress and misery and loneliness woven into it, um, into its core. Trying to adjust people and adapt people to that is just responding to sickness with more sickness. And you know me, I like to try and keep things on the practical, um, helpful, 
positive side. You know, it, it could happen here. Uh, and, and genuinely, with a smile and face, you know, <laughs> like it could happen here. Um, and so, I, I just wanted to put forward some recommendations, I guess. Um, I mean, obviously, we, we can't afford to wait until capitalism has been abolished to be happy. That's just ridiculous. I mean, that's long-term cure for a lot of the maladies and, and issues people are facing. Um, but in the meantime, understanding the roots of our stress in these systems can make the personal political and drive us to act and connect with people who can support us. I think that in organizing spaces, there needs to be special attention put towards creating support groups that have, allow for solidarity to be built. You know, allowing people to share their feelings and work through the challenges together. Self-care kind of frames things in a way that makes it seem as though healing is done on an individual level when healing is communal. Like you don't have to go through all this alone. Healing is an act of communion and the world must be forced to change, to reflect that. We recognize that we have each other and recognize that self-care and community care are inextricably linked. And once those facts are at the forefront, once we put communal care at the forefront, outside of the claws of the market, accessible to all, um, I think we can find hope. You know, and it, it really, it can start with something as simple as just reaching out, you know, um, grabbing groceries or doing dishes or watching kids, all of the care work that is swept to the side when we think about organizing and what it means to organize. But whether in your home or in your neighborhood or at work or at school, because yeah, I, I think in, especially in neighborhood settings, developing that sense of neighborliness could certainly help. Even something like a community garden, being able to connect with nature again. Or at all for the first time can really help life hard and we don't have to make it harder for each other so you can follow me on twitter at underscore saint drew on youtube.com slash andrewism patreon.com slash saint drew and i have been your host of it could happen here peace Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. 
Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's It Could Happen Here, a podcast about usually bad things happening, all the bad things that are happening everywhere, but occasionally about good things happening and people doing cool stuff to make a better world. And this, lucky you, lucky all of us, happens to be one of the latter kinds of episodes where we talk about good things happening. Uh, With me in the studio, which is more of an ephemeral concept than a physical studio because there's a plague going on, is James Stout and Garrison Davis uh, co-hosting the podcast. Hello, fellas. Greetings. Mm -hmm. Hi, Robert. Now, today, the thing that we're talking about, um, we we had about a week or so, two weeks ago, a a couple of representatives from the Elm Fork John Brown Gun Club in Dallas, Texas, come in, uh, and they had been providing armed security at a couple of different Dallas area protests against Christian nationalists. Um, I do recommend checking out those episodes. This week, we have one representative from that organization back on. And what we'll be talking about is there have been a series of attempted sweeps uh, in Dallas at a homeless camp. Um, And if you're not familiar with the concept, basically, uh, people who are experiencing homelessness set up uh, encampments in order to live with some degree of comfort and have, you know, their stuff with them. Um, these are generally in places like parks, uh, under overpasses, that kind of situation. 
and periodically the city will come through and sweep them. The city's language is always very much focused towards we're trying to help them, you know, uh, get into uh, some sort of situation where they can find help. Uh, but what usually winds up happening is the city takes a bunch of people's stuff and throws it in the trash, often before extreme weather events. Um, it's a really gnarly thing to experience. And activists in a number of cities have experimented with different tactics to try and stop and delay sweeps. And what we've had happening lately over the last week in Dallas is representatives of the Elm Fork John Brown Gun Club uh, have been showing up armed uh, alongside uh, activists with Say It With Your Chest Dallas. And the kind of thing that's been spreading on Twitter is, of course, the fact that activists have shown up with guns to stop the sweeps and the Dallas police have not shown up to do the sweeps. The thing that often gets missed in this kind of Twitter level discourse, although is covered in a pretty good Dallas Morning News article on the subject, is that there have also been activists, as I said, from the Say It With Your Chest movement who have been showing up to help people to provide laundry service, transportation, food and water. And essentially what they've been doing is trying to help people get things together and organized to move to a new location um, in a manner that allows them to do so with like dignity and comfort and not get their stuff thrown out by the city or experience violence from the police while it's happening. So um, that is the broad situation. I'm not going to say any more myself. I want to introduce Danny from Say It With Your Chest Dallas and Bubble from the Elm Fork John Brown Gun Club. Thank you both for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having us. Um, was that a broadly accurate summary of events? Um. Yeah, for the for the most part, the city has actually been sweeping several. They're they're cracking down on houselessness right now. Right. Um. Very very aggressively, and so it's not just that one camp that we were defending the other day, but um, the Monday before we were defending a, another camp, and um, I've never seen this many sweeps happen at one time, and I've been doing this for a little over two years now. I want to actually go a little bit into how your organization formed, but before that, do you have any kind of, can you posit why the city has suddenly ramped up sweeps so aggressively in Dallas? So uh, normally I'm talking to the residents. Um, I've never, I've never seen it happen like multiple times in a week. Usually they'll do one, uh, wait a little bit. We'll hear a notice upon another yeah. one a couple months later or something, but uh, multiple in a week at different spots is definitely um, definitely new to us. Um, as for why, the typical reasons are like, you know, the state fair comes up in October, so they'll try to sweep then, um, or they'll do it um, usually before like a housing development um, and things like that, where like the land is bought up or, you know, something. But recently, um, the motivations have been a little bit more unclear with the aggression. Um, it's kind of the, the city in terms of um, how they execute sweeps. It used to be that code compliance could not touch people's belongings. Recently, it has shifted to take everything, throw away everything. Um, but yeah, we still don't know. Yeah. Why all this is happening yet? It is certainly like part of a nationwide trend because we're having the same things happen in Portland increasingly. And obviously Portland and Dallas aren't the only cities where sweeps have been ramped up. Um, and of course you also have, oh gosh, I, I just ran across the article today that like there's discussion in certain cities about like 
yeah, somewhere in Florida about like putting houseless people in like essentially an island compound and whatnot, like basically an enca- like a concentration camp, right? Yeah, um, that's been also mentioned by uh, people affiliated with like uh, the Portland City Council and the mayor's yep. office as yes. like a base, essentially getting a concentrated collection of homeless people in one closed off area, and you're like, huh? I wonder. I wonder what they mean by that. Yeah, it's it's unsettling. So I'm I'm curious because obviously I think what y'all are doing in Dallas right now is extremely important and you've been having a lot of success so far. I wanted to talk a little bit about how your organization because we we chatted with the John Brown Gun Club folks a couple of weeks ago about how they started organizing. How did Say It With Your Chest get off the ground? Um so that was interesting. Say it with your chest originally started um, along with a lot of orgs and mutual aid orgs in Dallas um, after George Floyd was mur- murdered um, back in June of like 2020. Um, we started, um, I was in Plano at the time, which is like a suburb. That's and, where I grew up. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was in Plano at the time and, uh, you know, I, me and my friends were kind of like, these suburban people can turn off their TVs and not really have to worry about the protests going on downtown and things like that. So we would protest on street corners and just yell at, you know, white people in their Mercedes and, you know, make them uncomfortable on purpose. Um, then we started linking up with other mutual aid orgs in Dallas and, you know, was distributing food, trying to carry that stuff up North. Um, and then, uh, then we, um, well, I started going to Camp Rhonda, um, which was like probably the first and like, it was a very solid example of a self-sustaining houseless encampment where people were just allowed to be and left alone. We're helping people, a lot of them are in recovery and things like that. And um, everyone looked out for each other. It was a really great community. uh, That was such a rad project. Um, Not to, derail it too much but i want to tell you guys about camp ronda yeah like a politically organized unhouseless camp the organizers the outside organizers were there every day helping the camp itself was organized amongst themselves they had political theory meetings they had community meetings to solve issues and resolve interpersonal problems Mm -hmm. fucking rad um and it stayed together for nine months it was it lasted for a minute i know it was a approximate it was over six i believe but yeah uh, it lasted for a while at one location and then it had to move and then um the next location we ended up moving all the people to they stayed there for a solid 10 months before um the city sold the land in like some under the table deal and showed up and swept everybody it reminds me quite a bit of a, a place I, I I worked at in Seattle f- for a while, uh, Nicholsville, which was a plot of land, a couple of acres large, where houseless people had set up, basically built like a tiny home village for themselves. They provided solar power. Um, they had arranged their own like trash pickup. Um, it was safe and uh, uh, very well organized and very comfortable, like an actual fairly high standard of living. Um, good level, like good, good wastewater treatment and all that kind of stuff, um, which existed for a couple of years before the city came in and swept it and destroyed everybody's houses and, and forced them, you know, into again, kind of a series of camping situations. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, which is, you know, you get these, it's, it's very frustrating because there's this understanding that like, well, we want them in, I mean, part of the understanding you get from a number of cities is like, well, we do want them in one place and we want them in something that's more permanent than, you know, a bunch of tents. But if they set that up on their own and have autonomy and have the ability to like exist with any kind of personal freedom, then we don't want that. And we will send armed men in to break it up. Yeah. Like the city's like, oh yeah, well, I don't, I genuinely do not think the city of Dallas wants to house people. Um, Otherwise the office of homeless solutions simply would not exist. And they wouldn't have a way to just have money sitting around. Um, And all those people would lose their jobs, you know, because it's not housing people, you know, people are like, how do you do that? It's not hard. It's not difficult. The city is spending, what, $2 billion on renovating the convention center? That could house every houseless person in Dallas for years, you know? But Uh, but then we wouldn't be able to have all of the wonderful things. As someone who lived in Dallas 15 years, I can remember one, maybe even two times when I went to the convention center. What would we do? Yeah, I, never, <laughs> yeah. <definitely. laughs> I think maybe one time. Yeah. I, what's wrong with it to where we had like, it's Dallas prioritizes developers over anything else. And that is more than um, apparent in how they treat the houseless population. Um, they're definitely, cause it's like my, my problem, right? Okay. If the city, the city is going to do sweeps, that's something that I can't really necessarily stop them from doing on my own, Right. but we can mitigate and alleviate some of the effects of, you know? Um, but when the city is sweeping people in the heat like this, we're in the cold, elderly, disabled people. It's like, y'all really are just telling them to die. Yeah. Um, and the least you could do, and I've emailed Marcy Jackson, who's the um, community outreach chair for OHS. And, you know, she's been like, well, they can go to the shelter. It's a th- it's about, it's within three miles. And I'm like, you, you're going to walk three miles. You're telling somebody who is elderly and disabled to walk three miles in 107 degree heat to get to a cooling station that is only open to like five. Yeah. Well, uh, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance in the city. Just for a little bit of reference, too, because like we have cooling stations and stuff up in Portland and you have similar problems. One thing that is a benefit to folks in a place like Oregon is that after 5, 6 p.m., when like this cooling stations start to cool down, it actually does cool down here. Like it gets cool at night, even when it's 100 outside. That doesn't happen in Dallas during the no, summer. No, it's 99 had- at night. Yeah, I've literally had it be in triple digits at midnight in fucking Dallas, Texas. Like, that's the place it is. It doesn't yeah. cool down. No. So you're still, it's, it's still a threat to life and limb, even when the sun's not beating down on you. Yeah. Sometimes those cooling shelters, I know, certainly, like, here we have a bunch of issues with shelters and cooling shelters and stuff. Like, you don't have privacy. You can't bring your pets. They want you to lock all your possessions up somewhere else. Um there are like a number of other things that really limit people's ability to feel safe accessing. I don't know if it's the same there, but like, it's not like there's necessarily a place where someone would feel safe and they're not going there. I just want to make that clear. Pets are a big issue. And this is something that, again, when I was at Nicholsville, people would point out that like folks 
would accuse them of being like abusive because they had a cat or a dog, you know, that was living with them in the encampment. And they'd be like, well, number one, like, it's okay for me to live this way, but it's not okay for like a cat or a dog to live this way. (laughs) And also just like, do I not deserve companionship and love in my life? Like this is what this animal is one of the, is one of the things that helps keep me. And I talked to a number of folks who got back into housing who were like, if we had not had our cat with us, like, I don't know that we would have made it because just having that animal with us, yeah. like, helped. Like, it's it's for the same reason everybody has animals, right? <laughs> like Every single houseless person that has a pet has a service animal, has a, yeah. that is a service animal as far as I'm concerned. Would you separate somebody who is disabled from their wheelchair or would you separate somebody from their like their service animal, their dog that they need, you know? And it's like, when you're out there, um, I know that a lot of people have dogs for comfort, but also dogs are protection. They are security in such a dangerous environment um, where people are always, you know, like, it's just, it's just, it is unfathomable how much trauma um, goes into being houseless, especially in Dallas, in places like Dallas. Um, so I'd like to ask you a little bit. So you have been, is this kind of the first collaboration this last week or so that say it with your chest has had with the, the Elm Fork John Brown gun club? Had you guys been working together prior to this? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like we, um, I originally met members of Elm Fork when, um, Camp Rhonda first started, uh, uh-huh. back in 2020. Um, and we were collaborating on like getting people supplies, um, tents and things like that. I would run laundry um, with my org. Uh, and like, yeah, we were, we just, you know, always collaborated to make sure like the people could get what they need. If somebody had supplies, someone was able to show up and we couldn't, you know, um, just working together. Yeah. And I'm curious, um, could you kind of walk us through sort of how, the, what you see is the benefit of having folks who are visibly armed um, for this kind of for for these kind of actions. Like, how did how did number one sweep defense tend to work before y'all were doing that, and how has that altered kind of the way in which you're seeing the this activism like take effect? Um, as far as I know, people from uh, members of Elm Fork has, have always shown up with. Um, firearms in some capacity, whether it's concealed or open, but, um, there was a noticeable difference with the open carry. Um, I know that back in February when one of our other camps was getting swept, um, and they showed up like afterwards, we had a meeting with the director of, um, homeless solutions, Christine Crosley. She sucks. Um, and (laughs) (laughs) uh, she was like, people were like, we were hearing reports of people that were openly armed and we want to, we really care about the safety of like the unhoused residents out there. And I was like, they were more afraid of the cops than of the five people out here with with rifles. And that's, that's something it's like, if you're going to show up with 12 dudes with guns, what's the problem with some of us showing up with like, a little something just in case, you know, the state should not be the only one to have access to firearms. That is very dangerous. Um, but also I don't mean that in a 
two-way kind of way, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah. That does kind of bring up an interesting point, which is if you're showing, as you're showing up kind of in this capacity with both activists to kind of help folks with their stuff, with with laundry and other needs, but also people who are are carrying AR-15s and wearing plate carriers, I imagine there's like a degree to which you are trying to give people a heads up before just so they don't be like, oh, suddenly there's folks with guns. What's going on, right? Can you kind of walk us through the community outreach explaining sort of like how you how you actually go about letting people know what's going to be happening and stuff and, and what the folks showing up are doing? Well, uh, when it comes to sweeps um, and normally I focus a lot on just making sure the people are okay and defending them. Um, yeah. When I, I do not necessarily like ask for um, to show up with guns i'm just more like i assume if y'all are going to be there there are going to be sure um you know and sometimes there was usually the residents are like the residents have some of the residents have firearms themselves you know so they're like well aware um there are some cases where like people will get a little bit anxious about it and you know we kind of have to be like if you really don't want the guns here, then that's fine. We can move them. But in the past with this track record, like usually the city kind of backs off a little bit when they know that y'all yeah. are actually protected, you know, cause um, the city is, the city's a bully. They really do like picking on people who the most vulnerable of us, you know? Um, and so lately the guns have been seeming to like, have them back off a little bit. I know when they pulled up, like when Elm Fort pulled up and hopped out the car with the rifles, all of the cops literally squatted up into like a little, little, I don't know, pig circle and they started talking. Uh, and they were genuinely like, what do we do? Hold on. I thought we could only have them, you know? Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's kind of the, that's kind of the story as we're coming into it right now, which is there was supposed to be a sweep. What is it? Five days ago now? Friday. Yeah, almost a week. And y'all have been showing up a couple of times in that period to help people get their get things together and whatnot and get get moved, which is an important the the fact that you're helping them kind of move and and doing it more in kind of their own time frame as opposed to the city shows up and you've got to like grab what you can or lose everything um, is important because you're also you're not just showing up with activists with guns and saying like the the city, we're not going to let any like the, no one's going to move and we're like, we're, we're drawing a line in the sand, which is not, would not be a particularly yeah. safe call. I wouldn't think. Um, yeah. My, um, my main priority out there, because there's a lot of black and brown bodies out there. Yeah. Um, very vulnerable people is making sure that they are safe. And um, even before this last one, like, a lot of us were concerned about the guns because like we didn't want things to escalate. Yeah. And we never know with police. Sometimes they get really excited oh, when yeah. we're out, and then sometimes they back off. It's really a, uh, we really don't know. Um, so we were also taking that into consideration. Um, and I was kind of like, the young fork know, like, listen, there's a lot of black and brown people out here and we don't want to escalate anything and, you know, put people in danger. Um, and it seems like this time the city didn't really want to mess with that. So that's good. But 
it's always important to keep that in mind anytime you have firearms. Um, oh yes, vulnerable population. And I, I'm I'm curious, um, Bubble, can you talk a little bit about the um, how this kind of organizing is sort of different than the stuff you've been doing at at counter protesting events? Like, what are kind of the different things that y'all are keeping in mind as you as you make action plans for days like this compared to when you know you're showing up to at a at a protest to kind of counter groups of proud boys or whatever yeah it's pretty different um in that when we're doing security for marches or um you know protecting pride events uh it's not like a direct confrontation with the yeah. government so it's it's a bit it's a bit different it's a little bit more high stakes um when we do stop the sweep things you know we want to we want to push back but at the same um you know not be the first to cross any lines um so it is <clears throat> you know it is it is a more sensitive situation i think it requires different kind of planning um and of course there's there's all these bystanders there's all of the residents there who were there to help that we don't want to endanger in any way. Um, like Danny was saying, I actually had um, what ended up being a pretty cool conversation with a resident afterward, uh, but he was kind of an organizer in the camp and he was talking to me and he said, you know, I don't think we want the guns. Like we don't want any trouble. And uh, I leaned over to him and I, I whispered to him, look, we're just here with guns to try to get the cops to back off. Um, I think they're actually backing off now because we had actually just heard the cops were going to leave. I said, I think they're backing off. We're gone. Don't worry about it. And he said, wait, wait, you know, don't leave yet. Wait till they leave. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now that that's, uh, I, I am interested, like as the, uh, the actual folks showing up armed bubble, do you guys have kind of a like standard set of responses and stuff that you work through ahead of time to kind of explain things to people and make sure everyone's on the same page in terms of how they're doing it. Um, yeah, we have some of that worked out. That's an evolving thing where we're trying to standardize. Yeah. We've worked a long time with a core group of people that knows each other really well. Um, so we have like seen each other at, you know, dozens of these things and we, we know how each other uh, operates. With some newer people coming in, you know, we are working now on kind of standardizing those responses and, uh, you know, sharing our past experiences and our thinking and all that. Um, now, question for for both slash either of you, as you've gotten more into doing sweep defenses, what have been some of kind of the lessons learned, things that have been like, oh, okay, we went into it thinking like this was a good idea and it turned out that like that doesn't work very well. So we've had to do this, like just things that have kind of um, best practices that have kind of evolved over time doing this. Um, <laughs> honestly, a lot of it, a lot when, when tensions are really high like that, um, cause usually when it comes to sweeps, like I'm the one kind of like dealing with, um, a lot of like overseeing and stuff like that. And when tensions are really high like that, honestly, the best thing is harm reduction. Harm reduction is at the pinnacle of, it's at the core of like whatever we do. Yeah. Um, and part of that is meeting people where they're at um, and making sure that we um, help the people. I show up 
I, I shit you not, one of the best things that we started doing is showing up with packs of Newports on God. It makes it a lot, um, you know, when you're going through trauma like that um, and someone hands you a cigarette, that's something that not only helps you kind of regulate yourself when you're experiencing this high stress situation where you're being evicted from your home and you're going to lose your stuff and you're afraid people are going to steal things and it's a whole lot that helps bring people back and it makes it a lot easier for us to um, work with people and um, still maintain the bonds that we've created and maintain the levels of trust that we have with the community. Um, literally some simple things like handing out cigarettes um, during, cause that's a way that we're like, Hey, we're here for you. We know yeah. what you need. Yeah. And, and we're not, we're also, <laughs> We're not here to like judge what's best for you, you know, and do yeah, some like nanny like, state shit. Like you need a cigarette right now, right? Like it's stressful. Yeah, yeah. Not really like, hell, I would need a cigarette too, you know, yeah. at that point. Um, there was somebody who was like, you're asking people for Newport. You need to stop doing that. Like that's really unhealthy. And I thought you were trying to save these people. And it's like, I'm not trying to save yeah. anyone for starters. Yeah. I am. We're not Captain America. We're not no Avengers. Okay. We are regular people fulfilling a responsibility. And that responsibility is to be there for our neighbors. That's how movements happen. That's how anything happens. And all of that is rooted in, you know, indigenous um, communalism and theory and stuff like that, that I think is really important is just fulfilling that responsibility and being there for people. When it comes to, because, uh, you know, we always try to provide folks listening in other towns and stuff who may be, like, inspired by this with options for how they might move forward on trying to replicate some of y'all's successes. If people are looking at, okay, I would like to help do sweep defense, of, uh, I would like to do, you know, work kind of like this in my own community, how do you recommend, because obviously there's, you know, how, how to build organizations is another matter, but like if you've got a group together to help folks, how do you recommend kind of starting the process of introducing yourself? Because you can't just like show up and be like, hey, yeah, like, yeah. and be like, hey, we're going to certainly not with guns, but yeah, that's yeah. what cops do. And yeah. it doesn't work. Um, you have to develop a really, really strong rapport with your community first. And you also need to make sure that it's your community. Like, you know, um, I, I, I spent a really long time curating um, relationships with the unhoused populations of South Dallas. Um, and that took literal years, you know, mm -hmm. um, expecting people to trust you off the bat and expecting people to just like, be like, oh, you're one of the good guys. It's not going to happen, especially if you're white. Like, honestly, if we be in, if we keep it in a buck, because like, there's a whole lot of black and brown people out there in these vulnerable communities, and usually the white people that they see are the white people who are talking down to them and not treating them as human beings. The main thing that pe the people out there need most is consistency from you. Even if you don't, even if one day you don't have anything and you can just hand out water there with them yeah. and developing community that way. You know, and one of the things that people tell me a lot is that just it was, it's been very shocking to me how much I've heard it is people are like, you don't talk to us like how other people talk to us. You talk to us like we're people. 
And the sheer amount of times I was really shocked by how many times I've actually heard that because I'm like, you know, I don't really think I talk much differently from anybody else. But then when I go out there and see other people, just random people handing out McGriddles or whatever, you know, there's definitely a switch. Like if you were talking to a pet or to a child, you know, um, like you pity something. Yeah. People will not want you around because honestly, they don't want your pity. What they want is bottles of water. You know, if you're just only showing up when shit's going down, um, you don't actually have the people's trust. And I think if anything, that that hurts it a little bit because it's like, oh, I am only here to make you feel good about yourself. You want to be the one saving everybody. It's like, you got to dismantle your savior complex first before you do anything. And I I think it's good to talk about um, kind of how this actually, how these actions actually look on the ground. Because again, the thing that sort of has gone semi-viral on Twitter has been the fact that like, you know, people with guns stood off the cops. But if you're imagining some sort of like big armed standoff, like that's not how this has looked, which is the thing I liked about the Dallas Morning News article um, which we Wait, will. Do you mean the article or the opinion piece? Sorry. Yes. The... Oh, yes. What's the title of the article? Um, I am pulling it up right now just to to have that. We'll have it. There's an the opinion end. piece already. Oh, anytime unhoused people pop up in the discourse, someone is ready to write like a get yeah, up it's the, the opinion uh, piece. Yeah, the, the article. The article: Armed activists block Dallas workers from cleaning a homeless camp. That's unacceptable opinion. That's, yeah, that's not the one I was talking about. The one I'm talking about is titled, uh, and it is a news article, Dallas Delays Moving Homeless Camp After Activists Show Up, which did a good job of not kind of overemphasizing the armed part and talking about the actual work y'all were doing in the community. I was kind of impressed with it, especially given the Dallas Morning News' most recent, like, general <laughs> trends shall we say and considering their opinion piece they published yesterday yeah i hadn't seen that one could you talk a little bit about how these these actions have actually looked on the ground during the day of yeah so on the ground um some people uh arrived very early and you really never know when the cops in the city are going to show up so uh elm fork showed up uh close to nine and uh, there are already like four cops there. Um, and that, you know, that's unfortunate. We probably should have shown up earlier. We, you know, if, if we're going to go to protect the other activists, you know, you don't want to leave the unarmed activists exposed to um, police violence. Um, but either way, you know, we, we formed up. It was maybe two unarmed activists for every armed activist. Mm-hmm. And uh we discussed what to do. Some people decided to block off the streets with their vehicles. Um, the cops were there for a solid hour and a half before uh, homeless solution or yeah, office of homeless solutions and code compliance started arriving. So by that time, um, a, a good number of armed activists were there and the cops had been discussing amongst themselves um, you know, whatever it is that they were talking about. But when OHS and code got there, uh, they talked with the cops for about 30 minutes and uh, and they started leaving. During that time, uh, the unarmed activists were packing things up, um, 
get, you know, getting people ready to move if those people wanted to move. Uh, one, one thing to, to kind of go back a little bit, one thing that we've learned uh, carrying is it's very difficult to do the same things that we were doing as unarmed activists. Um, you know, we, we don't really want to be carrying tents and stuff while also trying to negotiate, you know, having a rifle in our arms. So, uh, you know, there's kind of a division of labor there. But, uh, you know, before two hours had even passed, basically, the sweep was called off, the city and the cops left, and uh, the mutual aid work continued throughout the rest of the day. Uh, Elm Fork had some members switching out. You know, some people had to go to work. Some people arrived uh, around noon. That was kind of the main switch out point. And, uh, you know, a, a lesser number of people, but still a significant amount, stayed there until 4 or 5 p.m. Whenever um, Fort comes with guns, the main thing that I like to have them do is surveillance and be watching. So that way we can focus on um, having other volunteers actually help people, you know, and like have them help them move and stuff. And the surveillance definitely helps because what happens when the cops leave and when the city leaves is that they'll still have people like watching um, and driving around and trying to surveil us. Um, and so having more eyes on that situation and having them know like, yeah, we're still here is really helpful. Great. Um, thank you. Uh, did anybody else have additional questions to ask? James, you, you had one or two more things. Yeah, I'm like I'm interested in in maybe asking Bubble this because I'm just looking at the pictures on the on the Dallas Morning News story. Um, and incredibly, they didn't lead with a picture of you all sort of uh suited and booted and full battle rattle, which I think is is good on their part. Um, but how do you present an event like this? Right, like uh, um, obviously I think we should probably mention that like I'm guessing it's legal to open carry where you are. Yeah. So you're not like immediately criming and, and therefore provoking a sort of violent confrontation with the police. Um, uh, although obviously the police are always turning up armed um, and that always brings violence into the equation. Uh, but are you like masked? Are you full? Like uh, this person I'm seeing is like masked, helmet, goggles, plate carrier. Uh, is that generally how you present or is that just left up to individuals? I wonder. Um, we try to be pretty uniform, but it definitely varies by action. I think the last time we came out armed, um, we were not in um, helmets and plate carriers. Um, but, you know, everyone has one now and uh, we discuss it beforehand. We decided to go that way. Um, we try not to park directly where we're going to get seen you know, if all possible, um, because we do need to get out, gear up, you know, walk over in all our stuff. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, for a lot of actions now, including security, that's kind of been our uh, go-to way of presenting. The full masks are very important. We've moved from like, you know, medical style masks to balaclava style masks just to get more skin coverage protect our identities better. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, one other thing I just wanted to ask and perhaps like explain in, in a context that might might not be relevant in Texas, I don't know. Um, in California, at least, you need two proofs of address to own a firearm, right? Um, uh, and if you're unhoused, you might not have those and therefore people are alienated from what is theoretically their right um, 
whether you want to see that as a universal right or a constitutional right. Uh, is is that the case there, or are these people able if they wanted oh, no. to? Texas doesn't give a fuck. No, right? no. no. Texas, you don't you don't have to file a four four seven three to buy a gun in the state of Texas. My gun literally was just given to me by somebody. I yeah. didn't have to do a title transfer or nothing. Like guns are so easy to get in Texas. It's actually really scary. Yeah. Um, if it's a private sale, you can basically do whatever you want. Yeah, it, it is hard not to wind up owning a gun in the state right? of Texas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Easier than owning a place to stay. Uh, Definitely. Way easier. Yeah. What a country, man. The house. <laughs> okay. Magnificent. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Not yeah. the case in other states. And I, just no. wanted to, I guess to. Uh, no. And, and nothing that we've said here should be taken as legal advice, re, how to protest or partake in armed activism because that can vary that varies wildly based on yeah. your zip code and everything we've talked about today is a massive series of felonies in a number of other parts of the United States like you're not you're not going to be providing sweep defense in New York City in this manner you know um, yeah yeah you do this where I live and board will show up with a drone yeah into consideration yeah so take uh, obviously i mean that's a big part of what you're saying though is you have to take the situation on the ground you have to take the situation with these people as individuals into you you can't just you can't just go in and impose like this is how we're going to do sweep defense you have to be go in there like being willing to learn and adapt because um this is not you know your day-to-day life and it is life for folks there and you have to come in willing to learn and understand what they need rather than like what you think they need yeah, the we never know what the city is going to show up with each time. Like the Monday sweep before this past one, uh, it was all marshals. It wasn't even act like regular DPD. It was all marshals. They were ready to arrest. They had bulldozers and cranes and all types of shit. Um, and that was also that was kind of off-putting because i was like wow y'all are being mad aggressive this time i think we just pissed them off too much to the point where they were like we have to be you know meaner about it um i mean but we ain't been arrested yet so yeah Uh, fingers crossed um i do want to i do want to mention one more thing i know we've talked about how this kind of pertains to dallas and, you know, had the similar, you know, s- situations on increasing sweeps across the country in Portland. I think uh, last month there was an episode on this show about a homeless encampment in Ohio. And in terms of like similar stuff that has happened to, to kind of demonstrate this is like, you know, this is a thing going on all across the country. Uh, there was a really interesting s- situation in Boise, Idaho earlier this year that we, I, we may want to cover more in depth in the future. But in uh, January, when it was freezing outside, uh, protesters and uh, and homeless people launched an encampment in front of the Boise State Capitol uh, to kind of both provide, you know, some type of shelter and community to help keep each other warm, but also in front of the Capitol as like a protest to demand access to shelter, um, you know, in, when while in the middle of like a pretty bad housing crisis and as it's freezing outside. Uh, people at the camp faced a lot of basically nonstop harassment from the state, whether that's police or like state state police. Uh, they also faced a lot of uh, problems from far right militia groups. The Idaho uh, Liberty Dogs showed up to harass people. There was you know militia showing up with guns. Um, so you can see like another instance 
where something that you know arm where another instance where armed community defense could be uh could be a part in trying to keep of situations like that from not escalating if done properly obviously if done improperly that can escalate the situations so it's up to you know, you have to make sure that you're with people who are you, who you know, who you trust, and who are responsible. But it's just it's it's another instance of stuff like this happening. Uh, Anti-fascists and other activists were able to push, uh, were were able to keep uh, conflicts from these militia groups to be relatively low at at the at the encampment. And after uh, a few months, and like like courts were trying to sh- shut down the protest that was un- unsuccessful because of certain laws around camping on on like uh capital grounds for protests uh but after a few months the protest was able to end and the city is now uh been pushed by the protest to open up possibly hundreds of units of shelter in the near future so you see other instances of of these types of protests that you know rely on a lot of like radical mutual aid a lot of resistance to the state violence a lot of, a lot of resistance to far-right violence actually being semi like successful, um, so there's a lot of places to learn from w- in this type of thing around homeless encampments and countering state violence. I would recommend uh, it, it. It's going down has a lot of good coverage of the Boise, Idaho thing. So yeah, that's just like a, a whole a whole other angle to this to this sort of uh, trend that we've been seeing the past year. I would like to say that you are not. Fidel Castro, you know, you are not the revolutionary leader. You are not the one, you know, like, and you need to keep that in mind when you're moving in these spaces and doing this type of work is if your goal is to try and be like the guy, you know, uh, that does way more harm than good. And that's really important to keep in mind. Um, and dismantling your savior complex is part of that. Um, of course, in that case, you know, the houseless people, uh, residents were, you know, consenting to it and things like that. But please do take into account the amount of danger that you are putting very, the most vulnerable populations into. Um, It is not necessarily a good idea or a morally okay idea to uh, make houseless people into your people's army, you know? Yeah, that is not. And I want to make sure that everybody, you know, listening is also well aware of like that is the wrong way to go about this. The people's army should be people like us, not the most vulnerable of us because they are already fighting very hard. So that means that's like it's the same thing, like saying white people should be at the front lines protecting black and brown people during protests. It's the same exact concept. You protect the most vulnerable of the group. You do not make them. um you know, your army and try to convert them into something and be the leader of that either. Um, that is, that is not the way to go about that. Yeah. If you're, if you're, if you're entering into this relationship with the plan that like, this is a way for us to build power for whatever end, as opposed to we're here to like help these people, um, then Mm. you're, you're putting them second to whatever your political goals are, which is bad, broadly speaking. (laughs) I mean, and yeah. I know, I know, at least in the case of the Idaho of, of in the uh, Ohio encampment that we talked about earlier this month, um, and the Idaho one as well, a large number of people who were like leading up that project and in prominent organizational roles were houses people who were living at those camps. Like, it is yeah. very important to have 
people who are like you don't want to go in as someone with stable housing and be like, okay, I'm in charge of this thing now. No, it's like the That's people who are actually experiencing it need to be the like a critical role in actually how it functions. Yeah. And there we've had, not we, but like there was somebody who tried to do that. Um, and it definitely did more harm than good. Um, putting your political goals over just the people is always going to fail every single time. Yeah. Um, listen to the people. If they're not leading it, don't do it. You know, like at that point, your only priority should be getting them what they need and defending them if necessary. Trying to lead stuff and, you know, have them putting them into more vulnerable situations than they're already at without like fully being transparent with people or uh, being transparent with all the risks involved, you know. Like it's that's real grimy, real not okay uh, behavior. <laughs> um, so that's just something I also want to caution people against. And all of that definitely roots back to dismantling your savior complex. And there's um, a lot of good um, resources out there um, for starting with that process if you have not already. Some of them awesome. are on the with your chest Instagram. I'll just check it out and follow us or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to? I think. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm at the, out of questions personally. Do we want to um, uh, end with kind of yeah, how folks can follow you and and stay in touch with what y'all are doing or potentially even support you? Yeah, um, we are uh, at say it with your chest DTX on Instagram. Um, I also organize with the Dallas Liberation Movement, which is a bigger org that mobilizes across the 9,000 square miles of DFW. Um, I run that with three of my good friends and organizers. Uh, and so you can follow us at Dallas Liberation MVMT on Instagram. Um, oh, if you're willing, able, and financially stable, throw us some cash, please. And uh, listen to black women. Listen to black and indigenous women. That's all I got. All right. Um, Bubble, did you have anything to add? I think it's important to have a diverse collection of groups. Um, you know, Danny's a hero. She's out there almost every day. Um, for Elm Fork, we do a lot of trainings. We do a lot of classes um, that take up our resources. But we have these longstanding relationships so that we can support each other um, when need be, um, you know, take care of your, take care of your spaces, take care of your communities. Like Danny said, um, focus on the people in those spaces, whether that be, uh, unhoused people or your own organizers and, uh, activists, you know, you got to keep, uh, you got to keep things safe. It's hot out here. There's been a lot of stress and, and conflicts and you always have to practice, um, restorative justice and, and accountability. Um, and, you know, just keep fighting, keep, keep loving each other. All right. Uh, well, that's going to do it for everybody here at it could happen here today. Uh, yeah, go, go, go do something good. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. 
It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hello! Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.